Hallo und herzlich willkommen bei einer Hello. weiteren Sitzung vom Corona-Ausschuss. To another meeting of the Corona Committee. It's the 106th meeting and it's called Mapping the Elephant. There's this phenomenon again and again that if you take a look at things only from a small aspect, um, you can see the overall picture. So. Um, if you only touch the foot of an elephant uh, as a small person, you might think, oh, this is a tree, trunk. Or if you happen to uh, see the tip of the um, hairy, uh, the hairy tip of the tail, you might feel that you're touching a cow or whatever. I think it's very important that we try to see the overall picture that we approximate at least the overall picture and that we put together all the um, uh, parts of the jigsaw puzzle um, that form this overall picture and today we'll add another few pieces to the jigsaw puzzle because we can only uh, take preventive action against what we're observing if we understand what we're seeing and a number of different um, aspects have been added. The monkeypox have been added now. That's new. And I was actually uh, a struggle with a uh, health problem last week. Um, I had a, a salamander um, um, shot, and I hope that I don't get a stink uh, snot or whatever. How are you, um, Rainer? Well, I'm, I'm happy. I don't have any issues. Maybe a little sorry I bite. Um, I'm now developing a PCR tests to get Stone Ridge and I'll immediately see whether anybody got bitten by a dinosaur and has the monkey pox or has been a monkey all along. That's probably going to be uh, deductible by that test I'm developing. And beyond that, I'm very convinced that um, things are possible here in the US. There is a big number of people, I would say over 50%, who for the most different reasons, most of them very righteously so, are of the opinion that what the government does and what the people who govern the government do is uh, completely out of the route. And um, how obvious that has been in the past and it's emerging now in review if we look back into what we've learned what i've learned especially and you viviani were much suspicious much earlier um, if i calculate all that i can understand why um, and in europe the masks are dropping ever faster the other side is under pressure and um, we can talk with friends about this. That's why they do make mistakes, which may be Freudian errors or Freudian slips, one may say. We've got one to start with, the former president of the United States, George Bush, who is not doing much better uh, Joe than Joe Biden uh, today. But the Freudian slip is a warning at the same time for all of us because um, the situation in Ukraine is what I see is the biggest problem at the moment because here and in Europe 
as well as in other countries as well, Latin America, more and more people are waking up. So that means when the other side sees there's no exit, we have to expect the worst also, including that a uh, gun is triggered at some point, accidentally maybe. And to talk about what's going on with this type of people, we'll just uh, give a little interview uh, George Bush gave a couple of days or what he tried to say and what he actually said. Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, doesn't matter anyway. 75. Uh, <laughs> Ja, man muss eben ein bisschen rumballern, was soll's, ne? Couple of bullets, whatever. Viviane. Fascinating. My father used to say the uh, subconscious is a, a squirrel and it came uh, up to the surface here very quickly with George W. Bush or whatever his name is, with a bushy tail, it came up now. And uh, the whole um, psychological component of this uh, story has kept us busy throughout our sessions. And um, I think that we've understood a lot of things, but at the same time, there are still a lot of um, unexplained um, aspects because it's really fascinating how this story, this narrative could take root, how um, the fear uh, could take root in Berlin. You can see, for instance, that very few people wear masks anymore, but um, you still see some people uh, wearing masks, uh, sometimes even with plastic gloves uh, in the middle of, well, what are already summery temperatures here. So there has uh, been some dent in, in people's psyche. And then, of course, uh, the, the uh, track that the opposite side has taken uh, I uh, grew up with uh, traumatology aspects, not because I was tra uh, traumatized, but my uh, father was a professor of traumatology and I was uh, brought along to um, the uh, lecture hall um, at an early age and uh, learned about these things. I'm very happy to have uh, Professor uh, Franz Rupert with us today. He is a, a trauma, uh, professor of traumatology, um, a professor at the Catholic Endowment University of Munich and psychological psychotherapist in his own practice in Munich. And he's written a few books, Confused Souls, The Truth Heals the Delusion, and I Want to Live, Love and Loved. Welcome. Hello, Viviana, and hello, Rainer. Thank you for inviting me and the opportunity to talk about psychology because we are into a topic here um, that um, goes beyond what we can do um, from straight understanding. You need a bit more in-depth understanding and I've been working for over 30 years with this topic and I worked with people who really fell mad and that's why I'd like to summarize my results of my work uh, to start off and then you will probably ask questions if uh, some things are not clear. Are you happy with that? Yeah. Okay, 
So I'd like to start with my little presentation, War and Corona Pandemics. Uh, the, these are the two, a summary of the two big events going on to ask the question, why are the people so destructive and uh, mad? And why is the evil um, ruling instead of all of us following the truth, the good and the beautiful? That's a, an analysis of a psychotraumatologic perspective. And um, I learned quite a lot in reading the book from your father, by the way. So, um, indications of destructivity and madness um, to, uh, to um, prevent yourself against the death of... Um, uh, suffocation, uh, people uh, and um, to create uh, peace and uh, safety, they um, invest in lethal weapons that kill off everything and they believe in um, in uh, richness only consisting of figures and they would rather listen to beautiful lies than to the truth and for me there is a basics in this if you don't understand yourself you won't understand the world and uh, i other side on the other side i can say i can only understand myself if i know the whole history of my own biography and what do i need for that for that i need from the beginning of my life, that means when the uh, ovary and the simon cell join, um, we are not uh, uh, just a mass of cells from the beginning um, that uh, you do experiences. And uh, that means our psyche is not connected uh, or not bound to the cells that make up our bodies. So each cell in includes the tool of the psyche, and uh, mainly that is uh, handling the information. So you have to know what happened when you were in the womb of your mother. What happened at the time? What happened during your birth? What happened in the first two, three years after your birth, these are things that you need to know to know yourself. Otherwise, you won't know yourselves. And um, then it goes to your current age. And we have a trespass, which we call the trespass of awareness, uh, which happens a couple of years after birth that um, we become aware of ourselves and these things that can be made aware for each one of us and if we don't do that all the past remains unconscious and then you have problems in dealing with the issues um, maybe the fear of death the fury that you may have from your early childhood on and uh, you won't be able to handle these um, if you don't know that 
um, so this is just like um, if you want to whole uh, solve your problems without knowing your past it's like uh, you search for your keys under the street lamp just because that's the only place where there is light but you won't find your keys there if you've lost them elsewhere and this is why you have to look into the story into your own history which is very very um, coining, I can tell you this from 30 years of experience, if you don't know what went on in the early stages of your life, you won't be able to understand how and why you feel what you feel. And uh, maybe a few points of what happens in this early childhood. Well, from the early childhood perspective, the mama, the mother is the world. She is the foundation of the human experience of the world. Um, what happened to her happened to me. And that is what uh, coined me for the rest of my life. And the father as a psychological dimension is only added usually after the birth. Uh, maybe sometime uh, some fathers take uh, get into contact with their children before birth, but that's rare. So what is our fundamental threat of life? And here we can clearly see the for the child, the father and the mother, the potential biggest threat of their life. Um, at the same time, the child needs its parents and loves them unconditionally. So if the parents are perpetrators, um, this has to be pushed away. And uh, I, I, I cannot admit myself to know this. And this is why the risks and... Um, and uh, the early experiences are projected to something else in the outside world. There is uh, bad, uh, dark, evil powers, and uh, the bad, the Russian, uh, the virus, or the climate. Uh, so these are abstract things that, um, that um, lead my attention away from the actual perpetrators, which were my parents, actually. Um, so uh, maybe my mother tried to abort me. Maybe she uh, tried not to um, give me everything I needed to survive. So these are the things that I take along in my life. So that's why we could say the virus may need, may help um, early traumatized people to um, serve as a narrative, um, to split off their uh, feelings of distress. And um, they take along, they live with that distress out of their early life, because maybe under birth they nearly died. And um, that has been split off and suppressed. Now, this narrative comes in as a plausible history or story. Like a little girl which was orally abused, um, uh, she compensates this by eating all of the stuff that she can get hold of and then uh, vomits it. And uh, that's an explanation. Um, because she eats too much, she has to uh, vomit it all. So it's not the point that I have um, feelings 
and I need a plausible explanation in the outside world. That's the mechanism. So uh, it's things like the weather turned or the child had the uh, wrong friends and that's why they're on drugs now. That's the, the stories that the people make up um, because they want explanations, but they have a certain distress about knowing the real uh, the real um, cause of their fear. And so who saves me uh, from that threat? Also, if my own parents were the perpetrators, I have to um, see them as my saviors because I am completely dependent on them and they are my benefactors. And for that, uh, to, to, to make that work internally, I need to split myself internally. That means the psyche splits up into different structures, and I have come up with a model for that. The uh, splitting of a person due to their trauma experience. So if you take this before the trauma, this structure is split up into three parts. We still have, and that's good news, healthy parts that are still able to detach and detect reality, but we have traumatized parts uh, that are overwhelmed by reality and who do not survive what they um, are subjected to if they don't build up a virtual reality, so to say, to help them survive. So. Under the pressure of the trauma, we are forced to flee into a fantasy reality, create our own construction of reality in our heads, which has nothing to do with real reality in the outside world, but we, which we do need, and we follow suit and defend with all force in order to be able to handle the traumas in ourselves. And uh, that has consequences. And for many uh, people, we have to see the dimensions. Um, and I've seen this throughout the continents, um, uh, talking with people what their biography is. That means many people have a biography as a trauma biography, starting with many children are not wanted. So women get pregnant and they don't want to become mothers. Uh, and uh, many pregnancies are aborted. And even if they're not aborted, it may happen that the woman doesn't want to have a child, but she has to have it. And that leads to respective traumatas. Um, and I'll call that the trauma of identity. Uh, the child is not wanted, you're not wanted, and uh, you have to adjust your life in that way that you are not wanted and you just have to uh, survive somehow. And usually the consequence is that they're not loved, which is um, relevant for partnerships in later life, um, that in their side, in they live the trauma of love and uh, they take identity out of a relationship um, by giving up their own identity. They define themselves through the partnership that they live with all the problems that that bears. And the third uh, level is uh, not protected, that is uh, violence. 
um, physical or physical or psychological violence leading to sexual traumas. Uh, up to one million children are um, sexually traumatized. Now, during the crisis, we've seen these figures rise. Um, so that I'm completely confused in my own uh, sexuality. Um, this is all so um, subject to shame um, that the relationship to my own body is destroyed. That uh, has an ultima ratio. I say it didn't happen to me, it happened to someone else. I even suppress what happened to me and uh, I only live in an internal world. So there is certain uh, pathologies showing this, uh, saying that people think that a life without a body is something to attain for. And then the fourth category of traumas is the traumatic of perpetratorship. Um, that means if you have given up your own ego, that you have adopted your will, you only want to do what the others want you to do, that you have an illusion of life, that you are not connected to your body, that you can't take over responsibility for what you do, that you're completely uh, split off, then you are easily an offender because you can do, you're free to do anything. You could do the worst things that you can imagine without uh, any psychological defect or damage. And at the same time, everybody who is an offender traumatizes themselves as well. We see this in soldiers as well who do uh, cruel things in war. And uh, there is a healthy part in the psyche of everyone. And there's so much uh, blame and shame on the people that they can only commit suicide to flee from these conflicts. So the uh, we have the survival strategies that many people live with, either as a victim or as an offender. And in general, we can say that our trauma survival strategies have saved our lives and made uh, survival possible when we were a child. And that's why they are so convincing. I have to do this. I'm not allowed to do anything. I can't do anything else. If I do anything else, I'll be, I'll die. Um, so they are clearly linked to the psychological structures. But then in later life, if I have survived the early childhood, then these um, strategies um, can be control, illusion, compensation strategies, destruction strategies. So um or uh, uh, deviations destructions all these different strategies will not lead to the uh, healing of the inner separation but create new traumas um and that's the fatal uh, vicious circle so to say um giving us the uh, phenomena of trans um, trans-generation uh, traumas that uh, parents traumatize their children and the children traumatize their grandchildren and so on. So if I look at this from the victim's perspective, I stay in my childish victim uh, role and um, I am blind for the perpetrators and the link up with the perpetrators is my, the content of my life. 
I fight with my uh, parents, with my teachers, with the politicians, but it's not leading us anywhere except from us wasting and um, projecting our energy of life to the perpetrators. If I look at this from the perpetrator's perspective, the same thing is that they instinctively find the victims they can do it with what they can do to what was done to them when they were children. That was a quite clear correlation to be found in the um, in the relationship between the victim and the perpetrator. And by being a perpetrator, I try to compensate my inner powerless with violence. And uh, by that, we create the illusion that if people are in positions of powers, they save the world. And uh, material abundance is used as a replacement for a lack of love, although all of us know that you can't buy love for any money in the world. <clears throat> and so that's an intermediate um, summary. If you're not early traumatized, you neither um, want absolute uh, power or total control or super richness. So you have to have a certain preparation in inverted commas to go down this way to get total control over everybody or have to be super rich. So. It's not so easy to say these are the bad perpetrators and these are good victims, but we can also see that for generations they have um, a, a family tree, so to say, um, together. So the victims even idealize their perpetrators and love them and feel helpless and alone without the perpetrators, and the perpetrators need the victims in uh, the same manner to uh, de de distract them from their own traumata so they can't get away, they can't get to peace, however powerful and rich they are, they always need someone um, to uh, project their trauma on. On a short-term basis, um, the uh, survival strategies may work. Uh, so taking a drug may work or a medical drug may work. but. It'll never work in the long run. Uh, it'll not split up the inner splitting of a personality. So that tells us that all narratives between victims and perpetrators are um, illusions. It's abstract ideas, of, um, arbitrary numbers, fictive uh, probabilities, and deep emotions like real joy, pain, and uh, sadness are systematically suppressed. This is things that are not allowed to happen. And the solution of these conflicts, which um, are then stylized to be uh, problems, uh, used in technology. So the vaccination, the super weapon, transhumanism, these are the um, key words that uh, are used to search for solutions and uh, uh, others uh, search for that uh, in spirituality, uh, churning away from all materialism. I think that's an illusion just as well. And so, all together, we can say victim and perpetrators 
um, saw off their own uh, part of the tree they sit on, uh, which is the help. So for generations, uh, the tree of life is what they sit on, and they cut off the branches they sit on themselves, either for others or for themselves, and in that they believe they help the others. So, that leads us to the question, is there anything beyond that uh, role of victim um, and uh, perpetrator? So, if you look at all the measures that we have gone through, the lockdown and the masks, the tests, the so-called vaccinations, in all of this, we can see it's restaging of early traumata. The lockdown, locking down, being subjected to the situation. It's like when I'm inside the womb of my mother, there's big danger outside and I have to stay inside. And uh, with the masks, the mask is, I uh, see my parents, they wear a mask for survival strategy. I'm not seen as the person who I am or the tests I have to prove. I have to prove I'm right, that I'm not dangerous, that I'm not someone good by definition. Just like a child who has to prove to their parents that it is fit to survive. And if we look at the vaccinations, then um, it is also something that uh, makes you an object. Uh, the physical boundaries of your body are changed, are trespassed, and um, that is, of course, very close to sexual abuse. Maybe I've lost that chart. Um, however, as a summary, um, is a life possible beyond that split up between uh, victim and perpetrators? Do we have any chance? And my solution, um, which is practically tested for many, many people, is that you have to develop your own self, um, healthy self. Uh, that's what you have to dig up. It's there, it exists because it exists early in the beginning. In the beginning of life, we are perfect. We are full of the joy of life and love and um, the need to be loved. We are highly social beings. And that is something that we have to dig up again. Uh, so developing a good sound self, um, developing our own will, which has been ironed out of us, um, saying, telling people, telling us, you only think about yourself and so on. You need your own healthy will to look at yourself in, in a positive way, and by that, feel yourself with your needs, feel your body, and allow uh, emotions that are just, and by that, have clear and true thoughts and. Uh, that is um, what will lead you to it. And then if it's lost, so that I don't know how uh, partnerships work on, how relationships work, I can develop them. 
uh, being on the basis of myself and I can see what other people's are and I can develop in that. And um, then I learn to do what's possible and not try to do what's not possible because the survival strategies always aim to do the impossible. Uh, so these people who say we need a new world order, they do that from their survival strategy, but you can't be constructed from your survival strategies. You only spread destruction and chaos in that. And so you use force and violence, and violence makes everything worse. I think that's a very important message here. Um, don't believe the people who promise you something uh, from their survival strategies. They can't be constructive and do any good. That is not inert in survival strategy, simply because they don't see the reality. They can only see reality from the healthy parts of their psyche and on that basis develop a constructive future. So, the basic idea, before I look at society, and uh, a society I might want to contribute whatever to, uh, leading to global peace maybe, uh, the point is be your own good society. If you are not happy with yourself, how will you be able to tell others what to do. How can you take on responsibility for others if you can't take responsibility for your own life? That's simply impossible. And a healthy um, identity is the concept um, to get out of this um, victim and offender dynamics is a um, good parentship, uh, careful or caring partnerships, constructive economics, and humane politics. The uh, current uh, economics is only on competition, um, where we talk about uh, cooperation. We actually do competition, and that is something that is quite crazy. Of course, there's a reason for this um, not being about economics, but just being about money and more money. So these are two books um, that I've written, Who Am I in a Traumatized Society? That's a, a book I have used uh, to describe that uh, dynamics. And the second book, I Want to Live, Love and Be Loved. Um, so where is this uh, from? How can we carry on? And how can we um, carry on not to get people to become monsters? This is one book um, translated in many languages, and this is the other also um, translated in a couple of languages. And so far, my uh, short presentation, um, I didn't want to go in too much into detail, but I think it is a good uh, key to enter into the discussion. Hans, I find this completely convincing, completely convincing. If you see it in combination with what Matthias Desmond says, uh, we have a well-rounded picture. I have two questions in this context. The first one being, if we look at people such as Harari, Schwab, 
Gates, Bush. I feel that you can see that they have serious problems when you listen to them. They're not funny and none of them seem to have humors. That seems to be a hallmark as well. If you listen to them, um, they put the fear of the Lord in you, particularly now that Mr. Bush seems to be losing his wits, uh, but it was much better previously. Can you fix such people? I don't think so. I think they're beyond redeem. And uh, the other thing is, um, I used to represent these kinds of people a long time ago, 20 years ago. Uh, it is these, well, they're part of the, um, uh, it's part of the traumatization that you described, um, is that people keep doing the same thing over and over again, traumatizing themselves in the process. But that is not a scientific uh, This is not science, it's just a scientific myth uh, mythology. Those are the very measures that, these uh, torture measures that emanate from such a, a traumatization that are now being imposed on the whole world, where psychologists, psychiatrists, um, and uh, other such people, or former people, if you wish, come up with this very thing to manipulate people. Uh, from what you said, my understanding is, uh, or I understood what's behind it, but my question tying into this, well, the first thing, first question is, can we do anything with these people? I have my doubts, but that's not my doubt. My job uh, is uh, a lawyer, and I've been uh, trained to uh, create, um, to, to ensure justice. Sometimes you really have to strike hard for that. And then the second question is, um, at the end of the day, does it work so well because so many people are caught up in uh, this kind of way or in a similar way, uh, pre be, being pre-traumatized already? Well, asking, answering the first question, Harari, Gates, and Bush, I wouldn't um, call them all the same. Um, so. I have even sent some of them my my book, and they didn't respond. Uh, so some of them are very reflected, but I think um, they want to get uh, recognition, for example, and I think they are quite reflected. They do, for some reason, understand, and maybe they are purchasable. So, and others, like Gates, if you look at his biography, uh, he was in therapy as a, an adolescent, and he had lots of fights with his mother. Why he is so split and uh, he's so phobic, um, it's like he has a, a need to control everything. He has got to disinfect everything before he touches it. So I think it's individual for everyone. I don't think you can look at them because they are in positions of power, they are like this. You always have to look at the individual biography of their lives, what was the experience from with their mother, with their birth and so on. And that helps you to understand the people and also tells you why they use different survival strategies. And for example, the biography of Trump is uh, very well known. 
his niece uh, written wrote a book uh, about him too much and never enough she is well acquainted with the trump family and um, his mother's um, was uh, completely off um, with one and a half years and his father was a bully who put him into this competition machine and that's what what turned him into what he is so we have to look at the biography of every individual and that will tell you um, why they prefer certain survival strategies so not all of us have the same uh, some are you know violent and uh, take any form of violence because they have been submitted to lots of violence and others are hidden uh, secret around the back they're very charming and friendly up front and uh, may distract people and learn to do that so every person is a bit different there and um, the question is basically yes everybody would have the chance to change yes absolutely if i start talking to people and um, they tell me look uh, i want to get out can you give me a chance i'll say yes of course i would but it needs the decision just in every person it needs the decision do i want to change my life do i want to uh, survive then just do survival and uh, and then I can say, the further you are down your offender's road, the more people you have harmed, the more it's clear when all that pops up and you are unveiled and it's clear you are a murderer and all of these things, um, then it is less likely that people uh, admit to all of that, the more they will fight to the bitter end to maintain their narrative um, before uh, committing suicide they will try to um, take as many people along to death as possible and that's the big danger for all of us um, these people who have that uh, that power um, if they don't see any exit anymore they say okay so down to abyss if I kill I get killed myself at least I um, took revenge in many others so this is something that we'll have to look at um, but um, finding uh, seeing an offender as an offender is something that is an important step that people due to their childhood story that many have so uh, horrible stories it's very incredible what people have to undergo um, that's why they are blind not against their own for their own parents but later for later perpetrators as well um, they don't notice and uh, get deceived very quickly and that is um, where we need more trust in our own gut feeling if you feel something somebody is funny believe in it and act accordingly instead of uh, blindly uh, trusting somebody and uh, giving them their your voice um, this is something if you see that how open and how overt and crazy some people are still they are elected and um, so that is uh, well, we need some enlightenment as well so maybe based on my own history i am blind to the offenders so that just just a minute viviana is it really the case that uh, that would really 
fall in place with the mass formation theory of Matthias Desmond, that this mass formation really worked. They're all mad out there, aren't they, That who, who are governing us. And um, it's something that doesn't surprise me anymore, but it did in the beginning when our eyes started to open. This can't be all these mad guys in the leading positions. But by now, I have come to see this because others won't even go for these leadership positions, except if they're a bit mad. A normal person doesn't have this omnipotent imagination. So that's one side. And now all of us are victims. I don't really see myself as a victim. I can fight back any time. And I have enough people that I can do this with together. But let's look at the normal victims. So is it really the case that this mass formation works because actually so many people are so severely traumatized. Is that really the explanation? That would be my hypothesis, yes. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. If so many people hadn't been traumatized so early in their childhood, going through this uh, trauma, uh, these traumata, I'm not uh, loved, I'm not wanted, I'm not protected. A million um, people in Germany are sexually traumatized, and it wouldn't work. And there's this uh, quote from the Communist uh, Manifesto that the uh, dominating thoughts are the thoughts of the dominators, but that is not true. The dominating thoughts is the uh, cross-section of the survival strategies of perpetrators and victims. And what uh, ties them together is their approach to handling um, problems and the avoidance of uh, the truth. Uh, like in the, this pandemic, we don't even talk about figures. Now we talk about figures, but not about feelings. Um, uh, a jab, it's just a small jab and uh, put on the mask, it's not that bad. So this permanent um, talking down of emotion, of true emotions, of true joy of, of life, this is also um, part of this uh, a pandemic. It is not the criterion, it's not a good life, but it's survival. Uh, so that life doesn't deteriorate into such uh, bad uh, diseases. So you're not guided by a good life, but by um, somehow surviving. And that um, is what uh, victims and perp perpetrators have in common. And also not to speak about uh, the trauma term. That's also what they have in common. And it also uh, stops people from speaking about their uh, psyche. Don't uh, think about your psyche yourself. Don't uh, talk about it. That's something else uh, perpetrators and victors have in common. They um, protect each other that way. Uh, we don't talk about each other's um, problems. So what uh, perpetrators and uh, victims have in common is that they don't uh, talk about their real problems. So um, the perpetrators uh, offer a different problem to them. That's not a real problem. But why do the victims accept this? Well, because otherwise they uh, would have to uh, deal with their actual problems. So now I have another objective. I fight this pandemic now together uh, with the perpetrators. I, I fight this heroic uh, fight against the pandemic. So I have a meaning in my life now. So sometimes the perpetrators even give the victims some meaning in life. Now um, life has a meaning because they can jointly fight the um, 
um, the pandemic, so we didn't have anything in common in the past, but now we have something that we can fight together. So we have to look very closely to understand why um, the victims don't see or don't want to see the perpetrators, why they don't see themselves as victims, and uh, that they're actually happy about being offered what the perpetrators offer them. I'd like to add what I remember from talking to my dad, who worked with heavily traumatized uh, child children soldiers from Mozambique and victims of uh, torture. And what we could observe, he could observe, was that the nucleus, the core in the brain that uh, uh, memorizes these uh, heavy traumatists has no time, uh, no sense of time. So we could see that um, if the child abusers um, um, had been abused themselves, so in the deed, they were so much uh, reminded of their own childhood trauma that they thought that child had provoked them. So he was inverted, other being the the child being the perpetrator, really. And uh, so if we look at that theory and uh, we'd apply that to the current situation, we would have a melting of the roles of the victims and the offenders, which is at least a psychological relief um, for each other that the offender who does this criminal activities at the same time feels provoked by the ones who don't want to wear a mask and then um, overboarding and uh, for the other person it is um, something tell, somebody tells me something and um, this is an uh, uh, give me give me some um, relief Well, uh, then I don't have to deal with myself and I can always attract myself and distance myself and um, engaging uh, with these trauma uh, with this is a um, abandonment of myself. So these actions allow myself to identify with something external. So the perpetrators offer narratives that you can identify with. And this gives you meaning in life again, because otherwise you would have to look at yourself, into yourself. And hence, the consequences traumatization um, makes it impossible to distinguish between myself and uh, the other, or myself and us. So we have to do this now, like as if it was a, a big joint uh, psyche. So. We don't call it people, we say we. We um, have heard this we, we, we all the time. And this we is the inability at the end of the day uh, to say I, or to say this is myself, this is I, um, uh, what do I want, uh, what do you want? And maybe there is a we, a um, constructive we, um, but um, it, it's postulated basically at the very beginning, uh, at the outset, without uh, defining um, what our joint interests are. So this getting bogged down in the we kind of uh, uh, undermines our ability to be uh, uh, oneself. So this only um, emerged over time in human history 
um, so that at the beginning we weren't even able as individuals to see ourselves as individuals, that we were only part of the tribe. And this is one of the achievements that we have uh, made with our civilization is that um, we understand what it is that makes myself uh, as opposed to the others so um, that this takes us to a certain level of maturity. It's a um, process of maturity of mutual uh, maturization uh, that we can get bogged down in. So if that is not promoted, if not fostered, then people remain immature so um, they can uh, grow up, they can become parents, but we're not able to do what we need to do as parents to be um, a uh, a partner for our children rather than just identifying with them uh, because I'm uh, internally still a little child and, and then become a father or a mother. Uh, that can't go well. I only confuse my children and uh, make it impossible for them to develop their own sense of self. Well, I'm just wondering if this way of thinking spreads and if there were people who cha could change the rules of our society that we consider these things, how would you imagine this practically to get things better? How can we organize the improvement? Well, enlightenment to start with, that's why I'm here. Um, in the current situation, um, that's not the only one. There will be other situations where we notice how crazy people are, how self-destructive, so we need enlightenment. We need uh, to know about these things. We have to look at uh, early traumatization. And if you take that seriously... You're saying uh, we, we. Well, well, I do it this way, at least. And if you do it that way and you understand the importance of these early processes, then you can immediately uh, realize that the type of um, birth process that we have today, that 50% of uh, mothers and children are traumatized, um, that's uh, unacceptable. Then um, the um, nursing care uh, of uh, little children, that they are separated from their mothers after a few months, that it systematically traumatizes them. So this alone has so much preventive potential if you think about it. And then the other thing is, of course, if you see, okay, there are people who um, have addiction problems, uh, they're mad, um, then you know exactly where to start. Then you can uh, leave out all the nonsensical therapies, uh, for instance, to um, give anorexic people um, a certain uh, dietary um, uh, suggestions. Uh, you can dispense with that. So the preventive... Uh, potential of my theory is enormous. And if Mr. Gates gave me a billion dollars now, I'd know exactly what to do uh, with it, what to uh, organize with it, and how to organize it. Uh, via Zoom, for instance, I do public work where people can uh, participate so they can see how uh, people can be healed. And this has a uh, an incredible role model character and immediately we'd have a large number of well-trained uh, trauma therapists uh, they could um, then engage in corrective or preventive uh, work so 
um, the billions that Mr. Gates has are our billions. He's taken them away from us. So yeah, if we if we join up and uh, if there were enough people to join up, uh, let's assume that uh, we just uh, use the money for that uh, to get a good life. Yeah, just imagine how much how much how much would we need for women who would like to be mothers, who can be mothers, that they have time to uh, look after their children uh, rather than having to work until uh, the children, um, well, leave me alone, do your own thing now, that sort of thing. Uh, instead of um, putting hundreds of, a hundred billion into nonsensical armaments now, if we gave that to uh, mothers so they can look well after their children, that you would immediately have a different society. Only that story with the midwives is ma massive that's going on. And um, I have a family midwife that comes home, who comes home and just takes away the fear of the mother of that new situation, who comes there and gives her loving care and supports all the uh, the family in, in how to uh, address such a newborn human Just be being. there, encourage people, yeah. That's right, yes. So, to get the family uh, underway at home. And another message that's dear to me. Most of the conflict that we have um, are uh, psychological conflicts. So, any conflict can be solved peacefully. That's the way it is. You can solve any conflict you have with anybody peacefully. And to know that every conflict solved uh, with violence will not lead to the solution of the conflict, but rather will harden the conflict and push it into the next generation, possibly. Because these are very fundamental uh, aspects that are not so difficult to understand, that you can teach people. And then what you need is to encourage people to feel, to have emotions. Well, that's clear that it can be done in another way. Yeah, that it can be different and uh, that you can solve uh, problems um, uh, cognitively only you need an emotional solution. And the work that I do is always uh, in groups and that's where you can learn from the example of someone else. And you can um, see for yourself that it can happen, that it can work. It's not. Uh, it's important that we don't do therapy in a, um, a closed chamber, but that we do it publicly in um, group sessions where people help each other. Franz, I think that all of this is quite right. I think it's very convincing, but we must not forget that the larger part of the work that you and Wolfgang have been discussing uh, can start right now, but uh, the biggest part of the work is yet ahead of us because at the moment priority is different. I think, first of all, the murders have to be stopped and then we can see who we can save or whether they all have to go to hell, um, which would be my pragmatic solution because that's quicker. Anyway, I do think it's quite right what you say, um, but priority number one must be to save ourselves and then if we are not able to do that, it's like in an aircraft. First of all, the mask has to drop and you have to save yourself before you help others uh, putting on the mask on. But I think it's very convincing. I think it falls very nicely into place with what Matthias Desmond says. 
Um, unfortunately, we are a bit behind our time schedule. We have to move on to our next guest. Franz, thank you very much. It was great stuff. <clears throat> okay, jetzt. Well, there's no either or, or first this and the other. It has to be done in parallel. And uh, what's important is enlightenment. Um, so, and we have to make sure that the perps can keep uh, going on as they as they have been. This has to be done in parallel. So we can't uh, do it sequentially. But I, I really respect the work that you do. We we share the workload. That's okay. One has to take the Winchester from the um, press, and the other one has to uh, negotiate. Okay, bye-bye. All right, thank you. Okay, dann machen wir jetzt auf Englisch weiter. She's a toxicologist, molecular biologist. She helped to develop a contraceptive vaccine in the 1990s that failed for its intended use as a temporary contraceptive in that it caused autoimmune ovarian destruction. It is now used to sterilize animals. Since then, she has done research into mechanisms and reproductive pathology for various toxicology cases and clients. And she's going to talk to us about the potential and realized reproductive impacts that the COVID genetic vaccines are having as well as plausible mechanisms to explain this. I know this is just part of what you're going to talk about, but I needed to introduce you in some way. How are you doing, Chancy? Oops, you're muted. My apologies, there we go. I said I'm well, thank you very much, Reiner. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. I'm staying here at my ranch and it couldn't be any better. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, we need to stay connected to uh, to nature and those things that uh, yeah. give us some happiness during these these times, which are very stressful, of course. So, um, thank you for what, having me. What on. happens back? Oh, of course. This is so important because, as you said, we not. Of course, we have to stay connected with nature, but we also have to stay connected with each other. In particular, okay. when it comes to. Uh, finding out what is really going on. And you're an important piece of this puzzle, in my view. Um, so what happened when you developed this contraceptive? And what is the result of this? Well, first of all, uh, for full disclosure, I was a junior scientist at the time. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Dunbar was the developer of, <clears throat> of the technology and had done the research for quite a while before I came into the laboratory. I came into the laboratory as we were choosing, uh, trying to choose the peptides to use and did some of the mimetope mapping to help figure out which peptides were most antigenic in the different uh, protein zona pellucida protein regions. And uh, we did some blasting, what's called blasting, to try to make sure that we didn't, we would not have a cross reaction to the proteins that were ex expected to be expressed uh, at that time, and uh, by all the computer analyses, it looked like we would be okay. But then once we got it into the animal model, uh, there was an autoimmune ovarian reaction. And so this, <clears throat> this contraceptive vaccine would have been very attractive because it, it was designed to prevent fertilization rather than implantation so that you don't have conception, which of course bypasses the argument that 
uh, you've allowed for fertilization to occur, and now and now you're not allowing for implantation to occur. So uh, it, it was really hyped up, very very um, uh, very big on the radar. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Nas National Institutes of Health. And uh, as a junior scientist, I really didn't understand why when it didn't work, uh, there was much interest to get the technology away from my boss uh, at the time, who was Dr. Dunbar. Um, she was actually sued for the patent for the technology. And I thought, what a strange thing, uh, it doesn't work. And of course, now years later, um, a bit past that naivety, I understand why. And so I've, I've stayed off and on in that field for years and have done different projects for, for certain clients uh, through my company, Toxicology Support Services, um, that have to do with when did, the reproductive field. When, when did this happen? When did it, when did they, uh, when were you puzzled that they were actually suing your boss because they wanted a they wanted a a an a, a tool or an instrument that in your view didn't work? It was in the 1990s at Baylor College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, now you know what what this is all about. <laughs> Yeah, well, there have been several groups that have pursued uh, similar things since, you know, when I was working in the lab, we were the egg group, there were the sperm groups that were working on similar contraceptives, uh, targeting sperm. And then uh, as recently as 2005, a paper came out by uh, Hence George Frank, I think it is, um, evaluation of fusogenic trophoblast surface epitopes as targets for immune contraception. This was a very interesting paper runner because they actually went to in vitro fertility clinics and they back engineered uh, some antibodies that these women had to their own proteins in order to come up with peptides that could be used as sterility peptides. Uh, so a lot of women who have problems conceiving have uh, antibodies to their own placental proteins, specifically to uh, trophoblast surface proteins, uh, such as the syncytins. I saw that uh, Dr. Woodard was on, and I have to say that my journey in the reproductive end of this uh, was related to COVID began because of he and Dr. Uh, Yidin's warnings to the European Medicine Agency, and um, I, I'm grateful for their contribution to warn people. Um, since then, I, I, I picked up some more work, uh, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but I wanted to say that, that this notion that they would not use uh, fusogenic type proteins or trophoblast proteins as immune contraception is, <clears throat> is not founded because this company, uh, Applogen, took Hans George Frank's work and uh, where he reverse engineered these, these proteins from women that had developed antibodies to their own uh, placental proteins, basically. He reverse engineered them into 12 more peptides 
that could act as sterility acting peptides. And it was patented through a company called Aplogen in 2008. So, so the use of proteins similar to the syncytins as immune contraceptives is, is very real. And the thought that Budarg and, and Dr. Yeadon had that it could be a cross-reaction could occur, which uh, would act to sterilize women or prevent them from maintaining pregnancies is, is very real. And I, and I believe we're seeing that. Um, we have this, this is this, this is extremely interesting because um, I'm currently on this tour, Crimes Against Humanity, and one of the participants is uh, Dr. Judy Mikovits, and she yeah. keeps pointing out this particular aspect is so important, the syncytin stuff. I hadn't understood it yet. Um, so what? is it with syncytin? I know that Wolfgang is talking about it, and I know that uh, our friend Dr. Mike Eden was talking about it. What precisely is happening? What is it being used for? So the syncytins are uh, uh, fusogenic proteins. They're ancient retroviral proteins, and they allow for fertilization uh, present in the, in the acrosome of the sperm head. They're uh, present in tro placental trophoblast proteins. They um, are similar to the spike protein in COVID, in, in the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And they have a similar enough conformational similarity to the spike protein that there is a cross-reaction between them. Matar et al. in 2021, in the summer of 221, showed that 15 women that were immunized with the Pfizer uh, vaccine, mRNA vaccine, all developed a different antibody response than they had baseline uh, following immunization with the mRNA vaccines. Now, they did a 1 to 50 serum dilution. There were other studies that hurriedly ran behind them. Uh, this was a study in Singapore to try to show that, oh, no, we shouldn't be concerned about this. So the next group decided that they would conduct their syncytin uh, antibody studies using a 1 to 800 dilution of the serum just to make sure that they didn't get any signal. Uh, it, it was quite alarming. Uh, of course, you wouldn't go behind someone that had a positive. Oh, and, and, and worse than that Matar paper was that they said for the first three quarters of the paper that there was no antibody reaction, that it was negative. It wasn't until you got to the last quarter of the paper that the authors acknowledged that all of the women, all of them, developed an antibody response. But it was so low, they didn't think that it meant anything. Now, this was in the complete absence of any data or any context, and, and the authors admitted that, yet they still, in their abstract and in the first three quarters of the paper, said that all the women did not have an antibody response, which was a blatant lie. Um, like I said, there were some other papers that quickly uh, moved in to try to cover this, and each of them used an odd way to conduct the experiment that not surprisingly came up negative. One group used hex cells to try to express the syncytin protein rather than just doing the very simple experiment that Matar did. 
uh, and they they claimed that they had a negative response. Uh, their positive control were antibodies from people who had uh, SLE, systematic uh, lupus. Um, and from previous experiments, they had shown that patients with, with SLE had elevated levels of antibodies to uh, sensitive one. So <clears throat> they used that as a positive control. A completely different experiment, uh, you know, not, not comparable. Instead of comparing within their group, they set those antibodies as, as the positive level. Uh, again, trying to completely mischaracterize and misdirect the study, um, in my opinion. So I, I believe those studies still have to be done, and they also need to be done with Sensitin-2. Uh, Sensitin-2 is also extremely important. Sensitin-2 uh, allows for immunosuppression during pregnancy so that women don't attack their fetuses. And it, there's a region within Sensitin-2 that uh, can immunosuppress T cells. And this may be what we're seeing with the lymphocyte depletion uh, in the mRNA vaccine technology. Um, I'm mimicking peptide region. So we, we need to do the Sensitin-1 and Sensitin-2 antibody studies, the ELISA still. And, and getting samples is proving more difficult than we thought. I mean, this is really, that's uh, so incredible that it seemed to be like almost manufactured or like, you know, fraudulent uh, studies out there to, exactly. to kind of cover up what's really going on. I was wondering, because this is also something that you have experience in, um, could you tell us like how these recalls or I mean the non-existence of, of any recall of the product here is different to what we've maybe seen before? Because I mean, do you know what we, I'm kind of used to when there's a problem with a, a, a medicamentation, you know, the, the product is then uh, pulled off, off the market rather quickly. I mean, we see that with like, uh, you know, toxic um, toy, toys for children. And I mean, in this case, there should also be some sort of reaction. But instead, we see a push of like, um, you know, rolling this out to even younger people and pregnant women in, in all kinds of uh, whatever circumstances is really strange. So so what is your observation? So yes, you're exactly right. Um, and that falls squarely within the realm of toxicology, of course. Uh, previously, our safety and regulatory agencies were that were safety and regulatory agencies rather than captured entities. I think there is no doubt to be left that the US uh, FDA and CDC are captured entities. Um, and the reasons for that is that nothing is transpiring the way that it used to or the way that it has historically. I'm sure you've had others come on uh, and talk about the swine flu epidemic and how you know 23 cases of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, halted or at least put put into place the study of the swine flu vaccine. In the end, I think there were about 53 total deaths from Guillain-Barre syndrome that stopped that, uh, that vaccine campaign. Uh, then later with Rotashield, uh, the vaccine against rotavirus, uh, I think it was uh, 10 cases of bowel interception, uh, bowel blockage that caused 
in infants that caused the CDC to pause and start to investigate what was going on. And they halted the vaccines at that point while they did the investigation. And uh, then uh, I think it got up to about 15 before they finally recalled it. And, and then there were more that rolled in after that. And there are still many cases of balanceception that follow rotavirus vaccine. But it was that particular vaccine, Rotashield, was halted then. So here we have uh, clear instances of very low mortality numbers that caused for the vaccines to be pulled in the past. Uh, this is also true with other, other drugs. Uh, and, and now nothing. We're up to uh, 28,141 deaths reported in the VAERS system, which is a pa uh, passive system, uh, not an active database. You have to report into it. And we know that that vastly underreports the actual cases and deaths. Uh, as of July of 2021, the CDC announced that it was investigating uh, 300 and some cases of, of myelopericarditis and 14 deaths in children. And yet they didn't stop while they were investigating the myocarditis cases in children. Now we're up to 40,000 some myocarditis cases, 40,553 myocarditis cases that have been reported passively into our system. So we know that it's, it's tens of times higher than that. Um, they are not doing their job. There is no safety and regulatory entity functioning in the US right now. And, uh, you know, they dance around it and pretend like they're doing their job by stopping the J&J &J vaccine. You know, uh, that's just theater. Uh, it's clear that if they had any um, intention of, of protecting the safety of children, that they would have stopped this long ago. Instead, they've approved, the FDA has approved uh, follow-up studies of the mortality and the presentation of myocarditis in kids for up to five years. Now, kids are not at risk. Children are not at risk uh, for mortality from COVID. They're more at risk to suffocate than they are to die from a COVID infection. And yet the CDC and the FDA are allowing children to be injected with these technologies that will give them myocarditis. And they know it will because they've already got the studies set up. And the FDA has mandated that Pfizer do these follow-up studies. Now, Pfizer hasn't actually done the studies. They were already supposed to give updates on those studies, or at least they aren't uh, making them available to anybody. But we know from a February 4th CDC committee meeting that they did study a cohort of about 360 patients 90 days out from diagnosis of myocarditis. And, and those patients ranged in age from 12 to 29. The, the big hit group for myocarditis is between ages 12 and 20, boys in particular, uh, white males in particular, 62%, I think, I, uh, of the cohort wow. of cases. It's it's really shocking. I'm, I, you know, like whenever I I come to think about this again, like it's I'm always shocked. Like even if I know, I mean, that they, they should be doing something, and I've, um, you know, understood this a while ago. It's always again shocking. I mean, how can you let this just go on like this and and don't do anything? I mean, they should have stepped on the brake, like such a long time ago, and even have ne never admitted this to the market. It's it's so it's so crazy. 
It's terrible when we've gotten to the point where the only thing we can advise people to do is to not comply and not take them rather than there being another mechanism by which we can halt this. Um, as you know, the judiciary has also been captured here to a large extent. And so we have lawsuits in place that are going forward against these agencies, but this proceeds very slowly. And in the meantime, of course, you have the propaganda going on in the background to try to uh, divert focus and, and say how wonderful the end. And part of that propaganda, you know, it's like the J&J, stopping the J&J shot. Um, yeah. That's propaganda. That's to make you think they're doing something. Yeah, uh, it's just theatrics, as you said. Um, are you aware um, that talking about lawsuits, um, I, I think um, there are, if, if there is a place in this world, on this globe, where legal remedies can still change matters, it's the United States. India, of course, some other states as well, Ecuador, Brazil, maybe, but the one place where everything is there, where, where you have all of the legal instruments to go after these um, institutions, shut them down and get our money back from them is in the United States because you have the three major advantages over the European system. You have class actions, you have a real law of evidence we don't. We have one that people imagine it exists, but it doesn't in practice. And you have punitive damages. Plus, in this country, um, the uh, government still doesn't dare to ignore decisions that are uh, that come down from a federal court. For example, uh, look at the Florida federal court, which decided that mass that the uh, CDC doesn't have the authority uh, to order uh, mass mandates. Uh, but you're right, they're stalling things. Um, and as you probably have heard, um, the latest news is that the case that um, the whistleblower um, J uh, Brooke Jackson brought against Pfizer. You know what happened there? Um, they claim, uh, and she, she in great detail, she and her attorney in great detail explained how this trial, the Pfizer trial, is just one big sham. They doctored the numbers, they destroyed their own control group two months into the, uh, into the trial. And did you hear the latest? Now they, they say in court, Oh, wait, we don't have to adhere by any rules. We don't have to worry about good clinical practice. Why is that? Well, we have a special agreement with the Department of Defense. Yes. I think this is called, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called OTA, uh, other transactions. Kind of like a right to try. Mm -hmm. We can do anything we want. The only thing we want, we were ordered to do, we were told to do, is supply them with prototypes. Now, I wonder if any of the people who got the injections were informed about that, that they're being injected with a prototype of something that doesn't really exist yet. So th those are the theatrics. Those are the things that they're playing uh, with us. And therefore, I think you're absolutely right. We have to finally stop worrying about and, and discussing in great deal, uh, detail whether or not the um, measures are um, proportional or not, or whether or not this is uh, uh, un unconstitutional. Well, it is, obviously. And while yeah. we're discussing these things, they're going forward with their agenda, probably laughing their heads off uh, at the stupidity of many of us still being caught up in a 
more or less academic discussion while we're really talking about life and death matters. So I'm really grateful you're saying the only way out of this is to simply not comply because that's what it takes. And in order for the people to not comply, they have to be informed. They have to know what's going on. And that's why it's so important that you're telling them that basically, if I'm not completely um, misconstruing what, we, what you're saying, there is a great risk, a super great risk of these shots sterilizing you. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's what we're investigating. We don't know whether it's just temporary uh, during the pregnancy or around the time of fertilization, whether people will not be able to conceive uh, or whether it will be permanent. And, and we also don't know whether it will be differentially uh, experienced among youngsters as opposed to, to older people. With immune contraceptives, what sometimes happens is that if you uh, develop an antibody response in a younger person who hasn't started their cycle yet, it only takes one or two shots to sterilize them, where it takes more in someone who's already uh, ovulating and or <clears throat> in, in, in their cycle. Um, so we don't, we don't know what will happen. And we don't know whether this will be, I mean, there's so much going, there's so much I could, um, I do want to finish a thought really quick uh, on the on the last thing I was talking about with the CDC's meeting on myocarditis, because I didn't finish that and uh, apologize, but they found in the, in the cohort of patients that they were studying, these 360 patients, that none of them had any indication of recovery by at least one of the tests that were done uh, so while they're out in the media claiming that these sh shots, if they induce myocarditis or pericarditis, it will be mild and there will be recovery after just a few weeks. Uh, the truth is that when they studied these patients 90 days out, uh, their summary slides, so there was not one patient that showed indication of recovery uh, according to an analysis of all the tests that they did. They did uh, about 10 different types of analysis for uh, cardiac health. That's incredibly distressing. Um, they also did a behavioral assessment uh, to find out where these, these kids were and young adults were. And um, there was an extremely high amount of depression. 5% uh, couldn't even take care of themselves without help. Uh, and pain, there was still a, a high percentage of these kids that had chronic pain uh, 90 days out. So this is not mild. This is not resolving. Uh, this is a serious, a serious deal. And um, with the pregnancy stuff, we really need some uh, not paid for. This is what the problem is. And you, you got at it earlier with the with the stuff that's being published in the literature, we have this literature coming out saying there's absolutely no problem with fertility, no problem with birth outcomes. Everything's wonderful and, and sunny. And then you have what's being reported into the active and passive databases. The active databases just monitor what's being diagnosed. So there's no foolery there uh, other than the Department of Defense going back and faking their own database after they got caught. Um, but, yeah. but it is what it is. Uh, in the passive database, of course, you have to report into it. So here's passive and active databases showing an incredible increase in miscarriage, you know, some 300% um, 
we're up to 4,000 something uh, miscarriage, 4,642 miscarriages, 27,000 menstrual disorders, uh, 133 stillbirths, and we know that's a fraction in the VAERS system. And then the DOD has this huge increase in uh, ovarian cancers, testicular cancers, reproductive problems, infertility uh, by the hundreds. And you have these papers coming out simultaneously that say nothing's wrong, there are no differences in the numbers. I heard, I heard Robert Malone, and he was, uh, he was speaking about the long time that those spike proteins are produced much longer than the normal mRNR is staying in the cells. He speaks about at least, uh, I think it was almost six weeks or months even, they would, they would be produced, they would continuously be produced. And so this is, what does it, what does it mean for the antibody production? Is the antibody production only, only very, very intense in the beginning? Or does it still, when the when the spike proteins are, are are ongoing in an ongoing process, still produced, are there is the, the antibodies also do they rise? So in in regard to to syncytine, to the antibodies against syncytine, mm -hmm. is it is it important that the spike protein are produced for such a long time? Uh, yes, and there there are so many different facets to that question. There's first there's the fact that we haven't had a coronavirus vaccine for all these years because coronavirus has been refractory to vaccination practices. We've never been able to do anything more than cause an increased pathology following uh, coronavirus. That's any type of coronavirus vaccination, whole protein, peptide, uh, mRNA, adenovirus, you know, vaccinia vector, any of these that were tried and sang at all in 2012 published a great review on that. Uh, and, and they showed that all of them induced an immunopathology. Uh, there's a table in the back of that paper that seems to show that uh, two of the techniques, and one of them using the, the spike protein as the immunogen, did not elicit an immunopathology. But then when you actually get into the discussion of the paper and get into the nitty gritty, the authors admit that all of the types, even that S protein type, did cause an immunopathology. And of course, we know from other studies that it did. Um, when we when we inject a protein uh, that's already made, it has its own glycosylation signatures, you know. But when we make proteins, we coat those proteins in our own glycosylation signature, which tells the body self. Um, there is a difference to the glycosylation pattern. This paper came out uh, in 2020, early on, uh, that there is a difference in the glycosylation pattern between the viral expressed spike and the uh, mRNA gene therapy induced spike. Mm -hmm. And that's important. Uh, if you have continued, there are a lot of problems with continued spike production. Of course, why do we have, we have the study 16, uh, for 60 days, uh, I think it was a Rolkin study. Uh, the study length was 60 days. So it could be much longer than that. Bruce Patterson uh, found the spike protein in those atypical monocytes going out for 15 months uh, in some patients. So if, if the mRNA is reverse transcribed into the genome as it is in the liver cell study uh, by Alden et al., 
you could be a constitutive expressor yeah. of these proteins. And, and we're trying to find that out now. Uh, and, and I'm sure that you have groups over there uh, that are also doing the same. We have to do these studies. We have to do these studies, uh, particularly in sperm cells and, and OVA, if we can, to see if they could be passing down through the germline. Um, we have to see if these this is happening in vivo. I believe it is. And others believe it is as well because of the length of the, the expression of the spike protein. Even with the modified nucleosides, it shouldn't be expressed that long. It should have been uh, gotten rid of, and it's not. So what's driving that continued expression? Are there, are there no animal models? Are there no animal trials going on with this? Not that I know of. And they're certainly not being done by the agencies, right? At least, at least this could be done in the meantime. Well, at this point, we have enough vaccinated people, and it's easy to obtain sperm uh, that you can study. Uh, you can study that directly in uh, in sperm. Um, the animal studies would be important, but there's all kinds of problems with that, just as there were. I think you brought it up early on as well, but the only appropriate species to study syncytin-mediated effects is, is old world primates, because theirs is the only syncytin that is similar to ours. Uh, also, the animals don't have ACE2 receptors. So when you're looking at something that is ACE2, human ACE2 mediated in an animal that doesn't have a human ACE2 receptor, you're also uh, distorting the picture. So all these rat studies, you know, we did all these rat reproductive studies. So what? It doesn't mean anything. We have enough human laboratory rats now. Yeah, unfortunately, but but also this is what needs to be done. There's no time for, for messing around. And, and honestly, if it was shown in an animal model, they would turn around and say that's not the appropriate model. <laughs> I mean, right? At this yeah. point, we can get the samples and we need to do the studies. Uh, and, and, you know, that's that's being undertaken. So um, we just need to get the answers. Reiner, is there a possibility that uh, if this question comes up in a, in, on, in court, is there a possibility that uh, a judge says, you have to do this study? Have you heard about that? You know, it would, it would be great if we could force that. There's another group that I'm working with called the VAC VIRI, the Vaccine uh, Injury um, Initiative uh, and Study Initiative, Research Initiative. And it was put together by a group. They brought me in later to try to establish um, a vaccine injury research initiative in Florida where they thought that it would be well-received and it could be perhaps funded by DeSantis. They tried to get DeSantis's ear and um, get him to, to investigate this, to actually uh, perhaps move the state laboratories towards investigating this. Unfortunately, uh, fell on deaf ears, so to speak, uh, despite multiple attempts to get his attention. So um, the group is now trying to garner grassroots attention to get some funding to, to fund some of these studies. You know, there are people in laboratories around the country and around the world that are willing to do these experiments, but they cost money. And, you know, buying the antibodies, buying the, buying the supplies, uh, it costs money, and 
the, for those researchers that have technicians and things like that that aren't doing it themselves, that takes that takes money. And here we are. How crazy is it that here we are, you know, trying to scab together laboratories and researchers and come up with the money privately to do these studies that right. should have been done. The shedding studies too. Where the heck are the shedding studies? You know they were done. Pfizer's documents imply they were done. You know, don't don't be around if you're around the study intervention. Don't go home to your to your spouse and, and try to conceive, or don't go home to your pregnant wife. So of course they did the studies, but they're hiding the results. Why are they hiding the results? Now we There's have to this initiative. This initiative, all trials in Great Britain, it started, and um, they were rather successful. But I don't hear anything about them anymore. Yeah, uh, it, I think it's it's difficult. You've got people uh, like Steve Kirsch that are trying to fund a lot of research in the U.S. and and God bless him uh, for putting his money where his mouth is and trying to get people funded to to do research to to try to stop this. Um, at, at the same time, we're fighting against a machine that is pumping out peer-reviewed papers, uh, such as those that came out in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine in the Surgisphere disaster. They have the money print, they have the money print print machines at home, so they can do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're 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 producing what, as I, I think I may have mispronounced this, but they're producing what um, Patrick Wood very correctly called scientism. Doesn't have anything to do with science. It's um, it, they're all bought and paid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a consultant myself, I know how this works. I've been a consultant for a long time, and I've consulted to to some of these larger companies um, over controversial issues and issues that involve lawsuits. I know how this works. Um, in academia, people still believe that the peer-reviewed science is the Bible, and so to speak and that nobody would put out fraudulent data. Nobody's, people aren't going to do that. We have a new definition of evidence now. What is evidence? When you want to have the evidence that the study had a good quality, that yeah. you can see it in the stock exchange. You can see when the, when the result of the study leads to, to rising, uh, to rising uh, amounts of, of but the rising prices of, of the shares, then it was a very successful study. Yes, like we've just seen with the monkeypox COVID yeah. uh, dual vaccine. So successful developed. study, and they get a lot of more money to do more of such studies to be so successful on the stock exchange. And this is this is has nothing to do with science anymore. It's just to do with money. Yeah, and it was brought up at the World Economic Forum meeting recently. One of the uh, presenters uh, that I'm sure you've probably covered this referred to COVID-19 as being extremely profitable. Uh, not yes. the vaccines, but COVID-19 is being extremely profitable for the stakeholders, making more billionaires in yes. uh, new billionaires in the first few but months I than any I other. As a, as a consultant, I may tell all the, tell all the investors, don't invest in monkeypox. It's a nonsense. This will crash in, in short time. Don't invest there. 
Because that's, it's so ridiculous what they do there. Well, from a financial perspective, it's actually a great investment because they'll do the same thing that they did with COVID. It's, it's not about reality anymore. It's not about scientific reality. They will pump it and they will propagandize it and it will be there in, in the perception of it will be real. And that's all you need. Let, it doesn't but have only to if be. we let them, only if we let them. Well, <laughs> there is but, nothing behind. But can you see that people are buying the, uh, like when you look at America, are they really buying the narrative in the same way that they did the uh, buy the Corona narrative? They're certainly becoming more astute, uh, but they're still afraid because I get emails and phone calls asking about monkeypox and how to protect. Uh, I thought one of, one of the best uh, proofs that this is just silliness is the fact that all these cases are popping up in in westernized countries that don't have any monkeys while there is a complete absence in the Asiatic, in Africa. The Republic of Congo, it popped up in a laboratory which was yes. run by, by US, by US organization. It was in 1958, the first monkeypox were discovered. Well, there were laboratory monkeys where it was discovered. Well, they, That's well, they right. To, yeah. So it's a nonsense, even in Congo. Yes. And a hundred, <laughs> only a hundred, um, only a hundred people have died over the years ostensibly from monkeypox. And I don't even know if it was actually attributed to monkeypox uh, yes. in the end, because we don't, we don't have those case studies to look at. Yeah, but, perhaps just, just victims of bad clinical practice. <laughs> exactly. Um, and now what's come out recently is that uh, some people are are coming up positive for syphilis after um, after the vaccines. And I think this is really interesting because I've, I've studied a lot of the old literature in my research. Uh, when coronavirus was first discovered, uh, the one that's most closely related to the SARS-CoV, um, so it was discovered in stocks of treponema pallidum back in the 60s. Treponema pallidum is a causative agent for syphilis. It was only discovered in the John Hopkins Nichols strain of syphilis. And it was discovered in Sweden and it was originally called the Stockholm agent. Um, so what, what does that mean? So I find it interesting that, so when you culture something and it was only very well propagated in intestinal and fetal intestinal epithelial cells and in uh, testicular cells in the rabbits, um, sometimes when you have a bacteria that's together with a virus, they can do some gene swapping. And I wonder if, <laughs> if that propagation over the years, for so many years, um, alongside treponema pallidum, allowed for some gene jumping that maybe is turning it positive as a false positive for syphilis in some testing. I mean, we don't really know, but it certainly piqued my interest when all of a sudden it's being reported now that there's a higher rate of, uh, or kind of an explosion of syphilis 
It's very strange. So, I mean, there seems to be a lot of things exploding. You know, you have these hepatitis uh, cases that pop up now, the monkey, monkey pox. Now, this what you say, and maybe it's going to be like 10 other things. So is that all? Maybe it's really just like these false, uh, false alarms, basically, from all other stuff that's mixed in there. And there's nothing real. Or it's like, um, do you know, uh, viruses or whatever that you have inside like dormant dormant versions mm -hmm. that pop up because of reactivated. the uh, yeah reactivated because of the uh, the you know the downsizing of your immune depression. system i think i think we experience a competition of alarmists mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> that well that too um so trying to figure out what's real and what's just being put out there is what they call fear porn in order to uh, agitate the populace and make them afraid, as they opposed sell, to they sell their agents yeah. as a as an object of, of of fear. They they offer it to those people who want to make us afraid. They, offer, they I can do it for you. I have a very dangerous uh, virus. I have a very dangerous thing here where you can where you can threaten the people with. I have the impression that they that they really make this this something like a competition, and sometimes it doesn't fit together. It's not one strategy, but I have the impression that there are many people who are trying to sell their ideas now, where they get a lot of money for it, and for the laboratories and for the institutions. Yeah. yeah, and we don't know how much these laboratories and institutions have been paid not to do research as well, uh, not to undertake. I, 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 had a, I had a chat conversation with somebody uh, at the University of Texas where I obtained my degree. It's about an alumni meeting. Uh, they needed some speakers, and I said, well, uh, this would be the title of my talk, you know, the COVID genetic vaccines, uh, science abandoned. Uh, he's, he commented that while it would certainly spark interest, it wasn't the right political climate to give that kind of a talk. Uh, Crazy. The constant comparison of any, any negativity towards this gene therapy platform as being a political movement is absolutely asinine. Um, I, yeah, I, I admit, I tried to, to get more into this possibilities of gene therapy the on the molecular level. Yeah. And the more I read, the more, the more ways there were, the more different ways. And people were experimenting with artificial viruses, with artificial agents, which they put together. In, and no, normally, we observe what happens in nature with something. Mm -hmm. There is there is no nature in those laboratories. They just take one product and put it with and combine it with the next product, and I think right. it's it's horrible. And I cannot I I don't see the possibility that we find something useful there in in lifetime in human lifetime. I, well, we can't use these technologies anymore. They have to be stopped. You know, I said it a couple of years ago. They have to be stopped. They're dangerous. Uh, last summer, we had an unusual RSV season. Well, uh, 
when, when do kids ever get RSV, respiratory syncytial virus in the summer? They never do. But concurrently, they had a uh, vaccination campaign and mRNA vaccination clinical trial going on yes. in varying age groups in the preceding year. I believe, just as I said for the for the coronavirus vaccines, that the vaccination is is inducing mutants that are uh, being differentially expressed in the population and mutant variants that are more dangerous than the original variant. And they and used, to, used to try this technology out <laughs> with, with cancer patients who normally don't survive so long, and so and, and they take take a lot of money for it. So. It paid off, and I think it's. Um, we cannot be sure about the, the efficiency or effectiveness of, of those uh, of those therapies. Neither in with a cancer therapy, um, there are some ideas right. that that sound that sound convincing, but there is not time enough to to follow up what is really coming out of this. What is the burden of cancer? What, what is going on with the burden of cancer? Is this the only way to, to, to carry it as society, a deep making business with those expensive experiments they offer us? There's so much to go into there. You know, what, what in our diet, what in our, our Western lifestyle induces the cancers that then they can come along and cure with this technology, right? Uh, we know that cancers are up by hundreds of percent, if not thousands, from the active databases compared to last year, particularly reproductive cancers, hepatic pancreatic cancers, the endocrine glands. We know that the spike protein is going to the endocrine glands, and uh, this is where we're seeing these aggressive pancreatic cancers, hepatic cancers, um, ovarian cancer, testicular cancer, and, of course, brain cancers have shot through the roof. Um, we've got to stop this. We Enough toxicologists, enough physicians and scientists have to get together uh, as a group. I know we're all doing this. But we have so many different groups. Yes, we've got to stand together as one group. We've got to find a way to bring all these together. You know, the C19 group, the AFLDS group, uh, all these individual state groups of doctors against this. We've got to stand together, all of us together, and say we are not, we're not fake. Uh, the majority of doctors don't agree with your no, plan. We you, should just go on. you know, there was this action of the, the nurses. They were, they got applause because they had such a dangerous and difficult job to do in the corona time. We should go on the balconies and on the windows mm -hmm. and start laughing about those people who try to cheat us. Just go out at eight o'clock in the evening on the balcony, on the window, and just laugh. Laugh that they try to cheat us. Don't believe them anymore. Just laugh at them. Make them ridiculous. Nah, that's not gonna work. We have to get out the information. And as you just, um, as you just mentioned, People have to understand this has nothing to do with health. It has everything to do with death because they care only about money. So let us, I, you mentioned this video, we have found it, we're gonna play it so that people understand that they really do not care about anything but money because in this video, the woman says COVID-19, not, not the vaccines or something, right. COVID-19 is the most profitable thing that ever happened, something like that. Let's hear it. Yes. 
The, the rise in billionaires has been, you know, unprecedented during the pandemic, and there's been several sectors where that has been mostly concentrated. And one is, in fact, the pharma sector, because COVID has been one of the most um, profitable products ever. So that's um, uh, one point to discuss, in, and our report out today is called Profiting from Pain, how the, those delays in, in making this technology available and um, really having people vaccinated early has contributed to that. But has also, as was said earlier, it's not only the direct health um, impacts, but it's the economic, social um, impacts on all parts of the population. And in reality, an increase in inequality, reversing the trend of the last few years where you know, inequality had reduced between rich countries and poor countries. Unfortunately, now it has widened. And, and the, the statistic we're saying is every 30 hours, um, a new billionaire was minted during the pandemic. And in every, the same rate, in 2022, a million people are falling into extreme poverty. I wonder why. I wonder why. Is there a correlation of people every 30 hours, someone becomes a billionaire because COVID is the most profitable product ever. And at the same time, more people are falling into poverty. I wonder whose money it is that makes them billionaires. It's so obvious. It's in your face. It, it's very in your face. And did you hear the title of that panel? Profiting through pain? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, go back and listen to the first part of where she where she mentions the the, the yeah. title of that that yeah. panel, like profiting through pain. Really, uh, it's it can't be any clearer than that. And I, we have just got to wake people up. Uh, unfortunately, as, as you know, Dr. Woodard, trying to wake up our colleagues who seem so brainwashed, uh, so many of them, it is very difficult. I'm not sure yeah. how to do it uh, if they don't already know. And it makes me extremely sad for the state of intellect. In mm. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that there are many colleagues that profit from pain. Yeah. We have to they don't want to risk their retirement to help do studies or to speak out, even if they know that it's wrong. That's been my experience. Yeah. So let's help them to turn. Well, I um, think you have to threaten them, tell them they're going to be held accountable. Yes, and give uh, the right incentives absolutely. and give the right incentives to do the right thing. If they don't yeah. earn money anymore with their with their work, it, like they did it, if they earn money with the right thing, they will change for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, we say, right. Both we guys. say exactly. Zuckerberg, they will Zuckerberg and Pichem, we say. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I think this is naive, but I, 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 I like it that you still believe in, even in these people's humanity. I do not. Uh, but I know, of course, that uh, when you listen to uh, Franz Rupert and when you listen to Matthias Desmet, you have to have, you have to get a grasp on what's going on. But the reality, in my view, is we have to fight them because they're not going to listen to us at any rate. Um, Jancy, this was extremely important. And if you don't mind, I would love to connect you with Judy Mikovits because that is one of her major themes since it. She and I have, um, have spoken a few times. Yes, I, I, I am. Connected. We've talked about this in Stittons early on. Uh, she shared some of her views on 
on uh, how different uh, protein or regions that were used to to create the vaccine uh, and and create the virus. And uh, I, I talked to her about this in sit and work. Uh, Dr. Bill Gallagher published something and it's worth going to and I'll send you the paper uh, in follow up to Dr. Woodard and Eden's uh, paper and he and he said in his blog in his virology blog he, he did quite a nice analysis unfortunately he's very pro-vaccine and he and I went back and forth over email several times uh, I asked him as the studies came out to come out and uh, you know please warn people please work with this and he uh, quite vehemently said that he would not uh, which is unfortunate, but I keep showing his work, his initial work. So uh, he's, he's participating whether he wants to or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's the way to do it. That's right. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having so me much. on. And I look, I look forward to speaking with you again. And thank you, Dr. Wardock, for all you're doing. Uh, Reiner, Reggie, thank you so much for all you're doing. Um, have a lot of respect we're, for you. We're all in this together. We do not have a choice. There's no other way. We have to do this and we will continue to do this until it's over. And then maybe we can start talking about healing some of these bastards. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Thank you so much. You guys have a lovely day or evening, I guess. Thank you. You too, Jen. you too, Jancy. Take care. Thank you. You too. All right. Now, uh, we can see Royster with us already. That's cool. Um, I'm uh, sorry to keep you waiting, but just a few minutes. I think this is still okay, right? No problem. Um, no problem. How are you doing today? Fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to file for my primary this, this morning, so I'm doing great. Um, let me just give a few words of introduction. You are a former professional basketball player and, and a civil rights activist and now you're running for office for the GOP. Can you tell us a little more? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, where, where to begin? There's, there's so much. I, I, I initially fought <laughs> the NBA, NBA around mental health policy 10 years ago, and this same medical authoritarian, radical materialist establishment laughed in my face basically and told me I was too smart for my own good to challenge the lack of mental health policy in the NBA. And uh, I sat back for 10 years and, and, and fought to break my way into, um, into the, 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 the light, you could say, out of the shadows of, of professional sports exile to talk about what I had seen from a global corporate community from behind the veil. And, um, I guess you could say that that finally took place when when I spoke out about the Uyghur genocide in, in uh, 2020 during the Big Three season. So I, I still play professional basketball in, in, in some respect. Um, and and then the, the, the George Floyd situation took place as well. And I talked about corporatocracy and the Federal Reserve again. Um, and through the entire George Floyd process here in Minneapolis, I was able to see all of the the corruption uh, in in our elected officials. Not that I didn't didn't know or wasn't aware of it, but I was able to see it intimately in the communities that I was raised in, and, and how we were being played or or utilized in the in the broader narrative up close. 
So what is it? What did you see back then when you first decided to uh, do something, work in civil rights? What is it? Mental health problems? What was going on in, in I guess you were taking a closer look, not just at your a particular sport, basketball, but maybe at the other sports like football uh, as well, which uh, we all know it's a business, but it's worse than that, right? Well, yeah, I mean, my my point or what I was trying to convey is that the NBA as this global institution is perfectly positioned uh, in, in scope and influence to spearhead a, a reimagining of what mental health is, what it means, and, and how to best accommodate or deal with it in the in the corporate community uh, as a as a uh, example for the entire workforce from from the United States to, to Beijing. Um, and, and obviously, that's just something that they rejected outright. Uh, and, and I tried to say that, you know, mental health is not so much about the DSM or uh, clinical diagnosis, that that mental health is another way to say the human condition where minds, body, and spirit converge, and, and that the human condition is what we really need to address. And of course, they had no interest in addressing the human condition because their entire business model was, was planning to be predatory around the human psychology in every way. Uh, and, and that was the, the collaboration between them, big tech, Wall Street. I mean, you pick, you, you know, you have your pick institutions that, that are all in on, on the scam of, of being predatory on the human psychology. So um, I, I was way ahead of my time in, in that regard. And, and I was just trying to uh, trying to have a conversation about mental health specifically, because I, I dealt with general anxiety, but, but it was a much broader conversation that they tried to suppress. This is extremely interesting, Royce, because this is we started today's session by talking to Professor Rupert. He is uh, he's someone who delves deeply into the human, um, I guess you could say, origins, creation uh, right after conception and all the way through birth. And his theory, which I find extremely convincing, is that we have all, or many of us, uh, have been deeply traumatized. That, in turn, ties in with um, Professor Matthias Desmet's observation about mass formation, because if it is true that a large part of the population has been deeply traumatized, traumatized then, of course, this part of the population is very receptive for the ideas of induced mass formation but what is it that prompted you to think about these things because all of a sudden you're right at the forefront of what really counts it's all about psychology and traumatization it's about mental health well i think it's a bit deeper than that you know i i come from a spiritual uh, background i was raised a catholic and and uh, I'm, I'm christian in, in faith so i i think it's a big deep a bit deeper than than the mental health i think the the, the the psychological is downstream from the spiritual but either way what what i what i understand to be true now and, and what i had the intuition towards back then is that the mainstream establishment the mainstream media has been able to hijack the narrative and manipulate everyday common people by one primary mechanism getting people to trade their their freedom for security and, and materialism and that's what we've really done across the board is we've we've traded our freedom to a super state a super state of international governance 
for for security and materialism. And we trusted naively trusted that in that that trade off that they would they would protect our interests, that they would they would have our best interest at heart. Uh, and mental health was just one of those many, many, um, many places of, of life or many, many uh, areas of life that we trusted them with. And I saw firsthand how predatory they not only not only were they dismissive of mental health as a as an integral part of comprehensive health, which had become a calling card of of much of the liberal left establishment, health care, health, wellness. So I was watching a growing wellness conversation, but at the same time, the same establishments and institutions and corporations that were starting to sign on to this, this public promotion of those ideas said behind closed doors that, that mental health is, is an issue that, that we'll get to when we, when we feel like it or when we're leveraged to get to it by, by the free market. And it's just, you know, I mean, that, 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 that is the, the quintessential example of corruption, in my opinion. You have also, before we maybe dig a little deeper, but there's another aspect of your life that probably most people don't really know a whole lot about. Uh, you have also spoken out on behalf of the, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't even know how to pronounce uh, this, uh, Uyghurs, you know, the people in China. What about th them? What What's the connection with them? Well, you know, being a black man here in America, a lot of, uh, a lot of our culture is driven around the ideas of freedom and justice or or the uh, the the misrepresentation of the ideas of freedom and justice. Uh, and 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 we grew up a lot. We grew up in school. We grew up as young people learning about the history of this country, which obviously had its 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 dark days and its tragedies and its un, un, unfair uh, stratification of power and, and humanity and dignity slavery, segregation, you know, the list goes on. Um, so, so we kind of grew up with this idea that justice and freedom were ideas or, or goals that black America was always striving towards. And it was shocking to me to realize that the same liberal politics along the, the lines of identity and, and race, especially here in America, we're completely fine with getting all of their goods and having a, 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 an inextricable economic relationship with China and the concentration camps that exist in China that 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 in, in turn, you know, or encamp two million ethnic minorities. I mean, the Uyghurs are the black people of China in, in some respect. And, and for all of the public figures and, and 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 talking heads of the institutions such as the NBA. Everybody was silent about this issue and they remain a, a lot of them remain silent to this day. Um, so, you know, I, I, I believe in Martin Luther King when he said injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And, and that would certainly count for the Uyghurs as well uh, of East Turkestan. And, and it's just a, it was a it was a microcosm that. In our radical materialism, many people here in America and in the West have signed on to allow China to be the steam engine the steam engine of our future, both economically, but, but also morally. And, and, and I'm completely against it. I reject it 100%. I think we all do, because this is what, for some strange reason, which we haven't quite figured out yet, that is what the U.S. government is trying to introduce here. 
a uh, Chinese-style social credit system. It seems to be become more and more obvious, and that's why I think it's extremely important that you push and that you and other people point out uh, that we're, we can't just sit here and uh, import everything that we think we need from the Chinese and turn a blind eye to, uh, well, I guess you must call them concentration camps that they have in China for the Uyghurs. Well, they call them they call them re-education camps, um, but but mm-hmm. I don't care what you call them. As a black man in America, I I know that when you bring a person to a place against their will and you keep them there against their will, um, it it is a prison. And and um, yeah. what's more scary about the Uyghur camps, in my opinion, is that the way they went about prosecuting the Uyghurs was by facial recognition and artificial intelligence. Um, and, you know, China has one of the biggest surveillance systems in the entire world, if not the biggest. And, and many people in America seem to be okay with this idea, this ultimate surveillance idea. Again, it's a surrendering of freedom for security and materialism. And it comes from radical fear. It comes from radical despair and anxiety and, and the, the, the unresolved despair and anxiety that makes people so fearful living in the here and now that they would give up their God-given inalienable rights to a, to a super institution or super state that we know we can't trust. I mean, to me, the whole thing is just ridiculous. I, I'm kind of shocked as to how we even got here, but, but I guess the high is so good that, that it's hard to turn down. Can I ask you, like, with regards to the black communities in in America, do you see a difference of awareness? Like, uh, do you know what's about what's going on at the moment when you consider, you know, compare it to um, whatever, like white white uh, folks or like uh, maybe people from Latin America or or other ethnic groups? Well, I, I think that all groups of people. Um, are having a difference of awareness within. Um, one thing I'll say that is clear about Black people is that we have been propped up as uh, a symbol of America's sins and, and America's progress. And on both ends of that, of that pendulum, we are manipulated. And, and um, because of that, because we have been neglected, by the by the state by by our country and because we have neglected ourselves within that um we are a victim of i don't want to say victim we are we are a victim of our of ourselves right and, and so like i see black people who live in a radical survivalist mentality and they're really often willing to acknowledge that corruption exists at the highest level, but they feel very unempowered to challenge it in any meaningful way. So when I challenged the NBA, for example, 10 years ago, it wasn't that people, black people or any people were saying, oh, you know what, you're wrong. The NBA is without foul or the NBA, you know, uh, doesn't have a problem with policy or their, their corporate mentality. But why would you risk a hundred million dollar salary or or potential earning to challenge this this makes no sense and so we, we we are suffering from a moral crisis in the black community we we see the survival or the the um 
the forward movement within the radical materialist template that has been set as being more important than moral integrity. Uh, and so, so that's, that's what I see from, from my own community by and large. And, and that's what I continue to work on changing. Mm -hmm. There's, I, here's an interesting observation that I think um, is true in the United States as well. We spoke to many people from all over the world, including uh, some members of the European Parliament from the uh, East European countries, the so former East Bloc countries. And they kept pointing out to, and, and over there, the vaccination rates, so-called vaccination rates, are much, much lower than in Western Europe as a whole. And they kept pointing out to us, you know, your problem in Germany, in France, in Italy, and the other Western European countries is that you're three generations away from totalitarianism. You have forgotten all about it. We, for us, it's only one generation away. We know we can't trust our governments. And I think, Royce, that there is something that, that, that there's a parallel um, situation here in the United States, because I think the black community has always known that they can't trust their governments. And that's why I think the black community is far less vaccinated than the rest of the country. I mean, this country is in pretty good shape, apart from, the, of, of course, all of the things that you're mentioning very, you're absolutely spot on. But it's compared with Europe, it's in pretty good shape because here you probably have 50% of the population, if not more in the meantime, who will not go along with these measure, measures any longer. That's why they're pushing for the war in Ukraine to spill over into the rest of Europe and then maybe yeah. become a World War III uh, kind of thing. But um, do, do you think this is correct that uh, we should, I, I mean, I, I spoke to the, um, to these east, former east, Eastern uh, East European uh, countries or representatives, I said, we, I think we should learn from you because this kind of suspicion is what we all of us need now. We have to get rid of the idea that these people are trying to do anything that has anything to do with healthcare. It's only about money and power. And I, I think in, in that vein, uh, same is true in the United States. We should talk more to those people who have been who have been uh, not so <laughs> oblivious as we have been. Um, I mean, I'm not anymore, but up until up until Corona uh, hit, I kind of was in line with the mainstream media. I didn't realize that they had all been bought and paid for. Now everything has changed. I don't believe anything anymore. Yeah. So in that respect, I think, would you would you agree that in that respect, the one good thing that's coming out of COVID is that it's a I think something is happening that's very positive because people of all color and from any country and of all genders are uniting in the recognition that we're all victims of the same perpetrators. You call them corporatocracy, something like that. I think you're absolutely correct. It's the global corporations and the global NGOs all run by the same corrupt people. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean the corporate the the corporatocracy. We we are in open warfare with the corporatocracy, asymmetrical warfare with the corporatocracy, and a globalist agenda that that gains power and moves itself forward in in the cover of 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 calling it conspiracy theory. 
Um, and and there is no there is no real conspiracy theory that international economic interests are are inextricably inextricably linked. I mean, I, there there was a time where the the liberals here in this country, for example, were were and continue to to claim that they are anti big corporation and anti corporate elitism. But the real scam here in America now is the people who say they're anti-establishment really aim to create socialism at a, at a global scale, which is still corporatism. Actually, it's the ultimate form of corporatism. So there's a failure of history. There's a failure of language. There's a failure of understanding. There's a failure of, 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 uh, of, of, of knowing where this country stands versus our other allies in Western Europe or in other places in the world. And, and that as connected as we've become, there is a great, great disconnection that still exists. And the disconnection is from truth, uh, not from content or information. We're connected to information and content. We're connected to each other, but we're disconnected from truth. And, and I, 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 I see um, that the COVID narrative is definitely pushed up the timeline. Um, but, but if I'm being honest, I think that here in America even, there are a great number of people that don't see how dire the situation really is and don't see the consequences of not being prepared at all times for the sharp turn of government to become tyrannical. And, and I love that the Eastern Bloc Europe co countries are closer to totalitarianism because totalitarianism is on the move. I mean, it, it's on the move in a very brazen fashion. Here in America, we had a poll come out in, in a January of 2022 where people, uh, I think it was like 60-something, 60 67, 68% of Democrats said that they were in favor of locking the unvaccinated in their homes. So, I mean, when you live in a country that, that when you live in a country that is sub, that submits to consensus and majorities, you run the risk of a 68% of a populace having that tyrannical effect if they are manipulated by a, by a powerful, manipulative, highly skilled, uh, elite person at a microphone. And, and that's where we live now. The mainstream media in America is run by six companies and all six companies sing from the same hymn book and they all have the same advertisers. I mean, we all see the, the, the short clip video where most of the programming we see is paid for by Pfizer or some other company of the same ilk. And, and these are dangerous times. And, and what I'm saying that because as power consolidates and as influence consolidates in this economic way, we run the risk of the, the turn to tyranny being sharper and faster than ever before. So the Eastern Bloc countries of Europe probably had more time to see the totalitarianism rise and take grip than we will have today. But so did the black community in this country because you've always known that you can't trust this government. Uh, so I think you're much better prepared and that's why we should talk much more with each other because as you said, 68%, I think I saw that poll. I think this is of January of this year. 68% uh, of the Democrats saying, yeah, you should uh, lock them up, the unvaccinated, lock them up. The, the reason for this is simply because they trust their government. They just can't imagine that their government is not their government, but it's a puppet regime 
whose strings are being pulled by the World Economic Forum, and many of whom have been produced, literally produced, by the World Economic Forum's um, Young Global Leaders Program. Once you take that step, once you are able to realize and to recognize what's really going on, the next step is easy by saying, we don't need you. You need us, but we don't need you. We can do our own thing. That's why we, that's Wolfgang Wodark and Vivian and myself, and many others uh, of the people who we interviewed, we all agree that real democracy is grassroots democracy that happens in the regions, in our communities. And that is where we each and every one of us has to understand that we have not just national sovereignty, we have individual sovereignty. And that's, that's how right. we can up a whole new system, disconnect from these criminal organizations because we don't need them. They need us. They're stealing our money. They have been stealing our money and our assets for the last decades. I don't know, probably 50, 60 decades. We should set up in our own regions, our own system of healthcare, education, judiciary, and economics. Well, no, what, one, one of two things. Number one is the establishment won't go quietly in an attempt their desperation, their attacks of desperation to increase as ideas like these spread. And I've been telling people yeah. recently how important the Second Amendment is here in America. And I and I and I and uh -huh. I want people I want people in Europe and all across the world to understand that when we talk about sovereignty and individual sovereignty, America's Second Amendment has been underwriting the individual sovereignty and the, the nation, the, the, the national sovereignty of over half the countries in the world. Because, and in, 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 in there's two parts to this. One is, yes, our military industrial complex has been just as immoral, unethical, and sometimes unconstitutional as any other body in the world, in, in, in the world's history. Um, but the Second Amendment that underwrites our American military has protected the sovereignty of Europe and, and many other places. Why? Because people won't come and fight us on the ground here. And I and we're we're talking about this this week because we had these mass shootings happen. You know, it's not worth it, or or you know, ten black people's lives in Buffalo. It's not worth it. No, these people have no these people have no frame of reference of history of what dictatorship, totalitarianism, and communism can really produce. Okay, if you remember in the in 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 Russia in the early 1900s, they had those propaganda posters that said, "Remember, it's wrong to eat your children." There are forms of desperation. There are forms and 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 circumstances that are far worse than the lone maniac psychopathic gunman that tragically killed the, those children this week or the black people in Buffalo last week. And we have to understand that we are beyond the point of easy decisions and easy answers. We face an international governing shadow group that plans to undermine the individual freedoms. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the cost to maintaining freedom and is that cost something we're willing to pay? Malcolm X, who was a famous black civil rights leader here in America, once said the price of freedom is death. And Thomas Jefferson was the first one to say the price of freedom is, is death. 
And, and some believe that what they were referring to is once you die, you have true freedom. My opinion of the, of the quote is that in order to be free, you have to confront the possibility of death, the responsibility of your own death. And many people have given that responsibility away to the very people that want to enslave them. They've given the responsibility of freedom and, and death, their own death, to the people who want to kill them. <laughs> I mean, it's the most bizarre, bizarre uh, paradox. But, 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 but fortunately, our founding fathers understood this. They were profound thinkers and said, hey, America is going to be the bastion of sovereignty and freedom for the entire world because nobody wants to come and fight a ground war here. Now, will people use missiles? That's a different story. You know, we'll, we'll, we have the ocean. You know, somebody said to me today uh, on online, the oceans are what stop people from invading. The oceans have never stopped a country from invading another country since, you know, since the since, since the 1800s, right? I mean, it's just, that's not a real thing. So people have a fundamental lack of understanding of what pillars actually protect their freedoms in the here and now. And individual sovereignty is maybe the single greatest idea that we need to maintain and protect going forward. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Because people, I think this is important to know. Once each and every one of us understands, this is what indiv individual sovereignty is about, understands that they all, I'm, I'm not saying this is the wrong words, they, they all can chip in that's wrong, um, but that they all have something that they can contribute. They have special talents or maybe not so special talents, but they do, each and every one has a talent that can be made use of. They only, the only thing they have to understand is that it's, there's no one out there who we need to ask for permission to be free. We right. have this inalienable right. And once people understand that, then they will also, I believe, understand that they, all of us, each and every one has individual capacities that can be used to contribute to a much, much better world than the one that we're living in right now. And, but let's let's take it a step further, because the talent pitch suggests, I mean, uh, we 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 part of the reason why people have given up their freedoms is because we have this outgrowth of of mass form psychosis, but it's also narcissism, right? The, the, and that is the real form of narcissism that's most prevalent and profound in our modern society. It's not the narcissism that they try and cast on any strong male that stands up and says, hey, this is wrong. Okay, that's that's the that's the that's the common way narcissism is used today in America, at least. Is uh, Donald Trump's a narcissist, or Royce White's a narcissist. If Malcolm X was alive today, he'd have been a narcissist, right? Any any strong male who stands up and says, you know what, this is absolutely out of control, he's a narcissist. And if a woman steps up and says the same thing and protects that male then she's a traitor to women. This is something we're dealing with in America in a profound way. But, but I wanted to say that in order to have freedom, you have to have self-governance. But in order to have self-governance, you have to have sacred honor and faith. And to have sacred honor and faith requires no talent. And that, in my opinion, is the real vindication and validation of faith-based living, is you don't have to have a talent in the world comparatively to somebody else to have a relationship with God or to have integrity and sacred honor. That's, and, and those things are the most, the most appraised in Judeo-Christian faith, but in most, 
metaphysical face. You, you don't have to be talented. It's not about what you can do out in the world. It's not about what you can produce. It's about who you are, what you stand for, and what you're willing to die for. And those things can make you just as heroic as the, the, most, the most physically talented, attributed person walking the land. That's the story of David versus, versus Goliath. He had belief in a slingshot, and, and he changed the world. And because of his faith in God, he became a king, and, and, and then he made some mistakes. Short of the mark. So, yeah, that's true. The thing is, um, many people keep asking, how much longer will this go? In my view, um, I wonder what your assessment is. In my view, the narrative is falling apart. Um, there, I, I, I sense desperation on the other side because if they're now playing a Corona 2.0 by bringing us uh, monkeypox, monkey pox, it's, right. so it's so obvious. Well, I do believe, however, that like you're saying, these people are not going down without a fight. They're going to, because they know if they go down, they really go down. They're going straight to hell, as I right. keep saying. Uh, so they're going to, they're not going to give up without a fight. Uh, and I'm afraid that the next card they're going to pull out of their sleeve is, is war. A war in Ukraine spilling over into Germany, the rest of Europe, and then maybe even uh, using, you know, tactical nuclear strikes, uh, whatever. I have no idea. But I do think that now that their narrative is falling apart, that is their next and final uh, card that they're going to pull out of their sleeve. What do you think about this? I, I think I think if there's even a 1% chance that it's possible, we have to treat it as 100% certainty. Um, because... Yeah. because um, what what's the alternative? The only alternative to what you're thinking is on it, which I agree with, is to sit back and wait and pray that they are uh, good people. <laughs> uh, and 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 we and there's just no evidence. I mean, if you're gonna talk about evidence and scientific method, the surest science that we have in the world today is that the the absolution of power corrupts absolutely, and and we have seen it time and time again, and. I do feel as though because the narrative is falling up, you know, there's something that happened here with the internet, which I think was, was introduced to try and create a, a wider spread mass form psychosis, but the, the human instinct towards truth backfired. And now there is this counter movement of truth being waged through internet and connectivity that is hard for them to maintain. And, and that's why you see the desperation to censor the internet, to censor conversations and suppress alternative perspectives. Um, and that, that, is, that was the first sign of desperation, in my opinion, was the, the radical effort to try and suppress anybody who was counter to the narrative. Um, but, but as the narrative continues to fall apart, they will try and ramp up uh, um, the, end, the end, the end game. And, and, uh, you know, there, there's multiple ways you could do, well, there's, there's three heralds in my opinion. You have plague, you have violence. The plague can come by way of disease. Uh, the, the, the violence is by way of war or, um, uh, 
civil disobedience, right? Uh, rioting. And, and then you have currency collapse, right? And famine. And the currency collapse one is, is kind of a dark horse that people aren't paying attention to. But, but I'll tell you this, when, when the currency collapses in the way that it's headed towards, in my opinion, one of two things will happen, or maybe both. We'll have way more violence than we're experiencing between Russia and Ukraine on a worldwide scale. Um, and, and also, that will be an opportunity for a global governance to step in and say, the only solution to the currency crisis is for us to reorganize and redistribute the entire currency system with a, with a new global, global overlord. And, uh, you know, in, in that scenario, you could see why they would want to plummet us into violence and currency collapse to usher in that 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 next level of, of global governance and totalitarianism. And maybe and maybe that's not happening. Maybe they're not trying to do it. But we have to behave as though it's a possibility because it's a possibility. Well, this is precisely what. Um the former Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, told us in great detail because she happens to also uh, be a former investment banker. But this is also what many of the other economists are telling us. There's a, a man in, uh, um, I, I think he used to be in New York, now he lives in Florida for obvious reasons. Uh, his name is uh, Martin Armstrong, and he agrees with that. Um, this is um, one, a necessity for them because they have looted and plundered our public coffers for, for decades now. So they're running out of steam and they're at the same time, they're seeing that we're, we're catching on. We're understanding what they've been doing. So they need to crash the system out of necessity, the financial system, out of necessity in order to distract our attention from what they've really done. And of course, because this is their ultimate goal of uh, gaining complete and full con control over us by installing, by making us believe that there's nobody out there, none of our national leaders who are not our national leaders anymore, who can save us. Therefore, we need a, we need a one world government and they, theirs, of course, because they, as we now know, they own the United Nations in the meantime, which isn't to say that they're not some good people uh, working for the UN, but at the very top, they're totally corrupt and they're now being yeah. owned by the World Economic Forum and the people who are pulling that uh, um, uh, the strings of the World Economic Forum. But at the same time, this is their, their ultimate means of control and um, because they're going to be the ones who are going to, um, they're, they're going to be the ones who have the one world bank that issues this one world digital currency, according to the guidelines of the Chinese social credit system. So right. I think the only way out is to get this information out and to make people understand that we have to turn our backs on them, let them go, just don't don't even listen to the mainstream media or, or the politicians go back into our communities our regions and set up a completely new system it's possible and it's happening already in this country in particular well the, the first thing that people have to do is they have to shake their notion of nationalism being a dirty word okay and 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 you could say one of the greatest info war number one we in America believe we won World War II, but we didn't win World War II. We lost the war. We, well, number one, we lost our faith. 
but we also lost lost the belief in the nation state as a natural mechanism, defense mechanism against economic imperialism or international tyranny. And, and we have to shake that right now. And this is a huge hurdle for us to overcome in our, in, in our understanding of history. All nationalism isn't bad nationalism. And sometimes right now, in fact, um, it is the lesser of, a two, of two potential evils. The, the, the um, expansion of global governance will lead to tyranny quicker than a, a return back to national, uh, uh, national honor, let's say, right? And, and so, you know, as a black man here in America, am I aware that sometimes nationalism will not benefit me or may come down on me in a way that is negative or harmful or dangerous? Yes, but I'm, I'm under no false notions that, that a global globalist socialism would be any would be better in fact i think that by what we've seen from the globalist agenda and their own admissions around how they feel feel about humanity and the way they want the world to work i would certainly be uh become marginalized in that new global society uh so you know i think a return to nationalism is a great prescription and people should vote for the nationalist candidates that are running in their countries. Now, should you just blindly vote for every nationalist candidate? No, but but borders do create uh, uh, an existential, a, a valid existential constraint on man's ambition to be empirical. Uh, so I, I think that nationalism has gotten a, a bad rep since Adolf Hitler and some of the other uh, fascist movements of that time period. And, and ever since then, post-World War II, you had the post-World War II democratic liberal order that has basically been on a 60 to 70 year buildup of totalitarianism and global governance. And we've given that over all based on the lie that any nationalism turns into Nazi Germany. It's like, no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Um. Yeah, the um, the fact that some of the virtues that some of the things that used to be virtues are now bad words, that's important because that is one of their major tools to redefine words, to find new words. Part of the reason is, as Judy Mikovits pointed out to us, that they want by changing definitions, by inventing new words that come into newer textbooks, that they want us to be incapable, the newer generation of scientists, for example, to talk to the older generation of scientists. It's a matter of confusion. It's intentional confusion and disorientation. But one thing is definitely certain, and I've, I've never stopped believing that, there are certain virtues which cannot be changed. Honor is a virtue, integrity is a virtue, sovereignty is a virtue. And I think we should all be aware of this and protect these things because without such virtues, without such principles, guiding principles, there can be no democracy and there cannot be a rule of law, I believe. I agree with you 100%. Uh, I think that when the rule, you know, when lawmakers become, and this is a this is a part of the problem here in America as well, because it, it, it would seem that we have 50% of people that are against the narrative, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but they are the silent majority right now. The establishment on both sides of the political aisle have, have weaponized and hijacked the narrative 
to appear as opposing forces. And, and you saw this a few years back with Donald Trump and Barack Obama and the whole narrative about where American politics is headed is they talked about the great divide or the polarization of the modern American political landscape or, or you know, the, the, the great rift between uh, the far right and the progressive left. All of the, it's all Infowars. The establishment political class, establishment mm -hmm. politics, the uniparty, are completely a game of controlled opposition. And in that controlled opposition, one of the things that is seeped down to the grassroots level on the Republican side, let's say, is a blind faith in rule of law. Well, what did that get us? That had a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump, who are America first nationalists in some respect, um, adhering to lockdowns, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the same people who now, you know, the, in post, ex post facto, you know, the lockdowns were bad, the mandates were bad, we have to fight, we have to do, we have to. Initially, they all had to bow to the lockdowns, or a lot of them bowed to the lockdowns, the same way a lot of them bowed to getting vaccinated mandatory for their job. And so we see how the legacy institutions and the culture and the narrative have a, a real palpable, quantifiable stronghold on dictating people's actions in their everyday life, even people who are anti-establishment. That, that vindicates the power of the establishment and the danger towards totalitarianism. People have to make a radical decision right now to trust in themselves or, or find a community of people that have shared values that they can trust in because um, the, the, the deception is far and wide. I mean, the Republican Party here in the United States is a complete institution of controlled opposition. And we are in a civil war politically right now within the Republican Party between the America first, uh, you know, the, the America first people and, and, and the establishment GOP, the, the rhinos or the, the neocons. And, and I mean, it's a throwdown. And the party across the landscape in the primaries have made it an effort to, to, to cut out all the America first candidates that they can. Right. And, and so, you know, th th these are these are the times of law, uh, the, the law of uncertain outcomes. But but we have to find trust and faith and courage to fight back against the establishment without without a doubt. And we have to know the truth. The rule of law, as far as I'm concerned, has been captured more or less by uh, and been um, uh, substituted with uh, propaganda. Um, and the, the weird thing is that it doesn't seem to have made a difference if a Democrat or Republican was president over the last decades, because both did the same, uh, meaning undermining people's sovereignty. Uh, I just realized when I spoke with a professor, um, Professor uh, Mark Crispin Miller, who is, a, who is, who is a, an expert on media, from NYU. And he said, you have to understand that it was only in 2014 that the idea of propaganda, most Americans think, yeah, propaganda is okay in order to manipulate the enemy. But in 2014, it was made legal to use propaganda against the American people. People have to understand that. And that was a democratic uh, uh, administration that did that. So they're all 
they're all puppets. They're all puppets whose strings are being pulled by the very same people. We have to be aware of this. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, there, there, there is hope. There is, there is an optimistic light at the tunnel. And, and that light is that the power still rests within we, the people and, and our participation, our capitulation, um, you know, our, our bending the knee is what gives them power. Uh, if, if we decide, we could decide at any moment to take that power back. The question is, what hurdles do we face as we the people in waking up to take those, to take that power back? And, and that taking that power back has been interrupted, in my opinion, by this radical materialism. Everybody's too busy doing something else. Everybody's too busy with their own, their own desires, their own want for this thing, that thing. It doesn't matter. Pick something, whether it's career whether it's romantic pursuits, whether it's money, uh, you know, uh, 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 material goods, uh, hobby, it doesn't matter. You can pick one. And what they've done is this, this, this new technocracy has littered the entire field with so many gumdrops, you could say, with, with so many treasures that it's hard to stay focused on protecting your freedom or sovereignty. And, and so we have to have a renaissance right now in, in America and around the world of what it means to be free and, and, and how dire it is for us to commit and, and, and accept the responsibility of freedom as, as an actual life goal, <laughs> as a life achievement, to, to live in this way where you protect your individual sovereignty and citizenship is, is something to be admired and it's something to be revered. We've lost that. You know, all of these people who are freedom fighters, they get some support tacitly online, tweets, retweets, and comments, likes, and, oh, that was a really cool and profound thing that person said. It's not enough. It's not enough. We have to live it. We have to live it, and that's, yeah. again, why I think Christianity and faith have a profound vindication in these times because it wasn't enough to just gawk at Jesus Christ or any of the other prophets. You, you, you were supposed to model yourself after them. You were supposed to live it. And, and uh, you know, the church and, and many Christian institutions have taken the Lord's name in vain. And I understand people's hesitancy and skepticism of, of Christian and, and, and faith institutions as well. Because the Vatican is as corrupt, maybe, as the World Economic Forum. <laughs> uh, and I say that as a Catholic. Um, but but the, the, the resistance and, and the, the fighting back against the establishment is going to come across the board. My point is that when you have a metaphysical faith and, and a higher accounting, it's easier for one to throw away all of the, the, the superficial material things in pursuit of integrity as a virtue. But I think that it's also, you know, there's also some sort of um, unknown strength of like humankind now coming to light you know like it's this like also as we speak you know there's already like some sort of i can feel some you know it's another throw into the morphogenetic field of energy and it's kind of like you know exuding to to other people it's just like also drawing people in and i don't think this is only like a fight in in the sense of that you, you really have to i don't know um you know get like into your arms and like be be uh you know also in this defense mode or so all the time i see it also like as a growing together of i mean it's maybe like a little kitschy 
energy, but like the hearts, you know, or like the spirit. It's like a like a kind of that's also a lot of strength and and fun at the same time, you know. I mean, we always say that we've never met so many really amazing people, like you know, working on the same thing together and uh, putting all their their energy into that. And so I think that's that's also um, you know empowering. And I think we are really at this sort of turning point where we now as humankind have the chance to really overcome this whole bullshit and but also do it like in a although we might face have been facing hardships, you know, and will maybe continue to do that. But I think it's also like sort of in a, a positive and fun way at the same time. I mean, as as maybe contradictory, this might sound. No, I don't think it's contradictory at all. I, I think that, you know, in, in my life. I wake up every morning and I can't wait to be able to to preach the truth, to fight for the truth, to to live my life in a way that tries to spread the truth to as many people as I can. Um, that is fun. I mean, that 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 is fulfilling. I think we have to reorient what we what we see as fulfillment in our everyday lives from from the same establishment that tried to trick us into believing that fulfillment, even in America, in this sort of crony capitalist, you know, evil way that that fulfillment is getting more than the next person. Everything is a measurement of how much more do I have than the next person? Uh, and, and I need to judge myself or measure my life success based on my material possessions and my material acquisition. It's completely not only is it not only is it uh, poisonous to the mind and to the body and the spirit, but it's actually a tool for them to keep you distracted from taking your rights. So, uh, yeah, I think I think the fight for freedom should is, is a hopeful one, and it, it it should be fun. It should be one that is that is looked at as something positive and something that gives people energy and and uh, and fulfillment for sure. Well, you know what, Royce, uh, this is the perfect transition. I don't believe in uh, coincidence, uh, coincidences anymore. And you couldn't have known that our next guest is uh, uh, Archbishop and Diplomat Emeritus of Vatican City, Carlo Maria Vigano. So this is the perfect <laughs> transition. Uh, oh, I, don't, man, I don't think I, you knew this, did you? <laughs> I, I had no clue, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. Um, Archbishop Vigano is is a man that I I revere. Um, I think he's a hero. He's he's a, definitely a, a hero to Catholics, but he's a hero to humanity. And to step out and speak Amen. out against the oldest institution in the world, um, or one of the oldest institutions in the world, in the way that he has, is is a testament of true courage. And it's something that I relate to and resonate with because the NBA certainly isn't as big as the Catholic Church by any means, but it's a pretty powerful institution here in America. And, and I know what type of courage it takes to step out and speak out against the establishment and the power like that. So uh, I was just trying to get a hold of, of Archbishop Vigano in the last couple of, uh, of weeks here. And, uh, you know, as fate would have it, here he is. So that, that's awesome. Praise be to God. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Royce. We will stay in touch because that's what makes us strong, the connection of all of the good people in this world. And there are many more than the other, uh, other side thinks there are. Uh, so thank you so much, Royce. It was a pleasure, a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Godspeed. Same to you. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. So well, yeah, 
Yes, yeah, so we are um, delighted to um, greet um, His Excellency uh, Carlo Maria Vigano, as you already um, uh, introduced him. And he's here, I believe, via phone. And um, But yeah. we, I think we're going to show a picture. Um, so I was wondering, His Excellency, can you hear us? Good evening. Yes, Archbishop Vigano speaking. Very delighted to come to you. with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, as we have just heard from a very prominent former basketball player um, in the, here, Royce White, uh, White in the United States, he, just like all of us and many other people in this world, is a huge fan of yours. Uh, we have, this is a, a prepared interview. Um, so let's just go ahead um, uh, and uh, start with the questions and your answers to this, if that is okay with you. Vivian. Yeah, okay, so I read the first question. So we, we sent these questions beforehand. So um, uh, His Excellency could prepare or like make, um, you know, uh, uh, like, decide on which areas of the question to focus most. So I read the question. Your Excellency, many people know and appreciate you very much for having been a sincere man in an often insincere environment, even during your service at the Vatican. You have served as a top diplomat, specifically at, as the Vatican Nuncio in the United States, representing the Pope to the local churches in the United States. It is a great honor and pleasure to speak with you today. But before we move to, on to substance and ask you about your assessment of the, world, uh, the world's political situation, especially with regards to the so-called corona crisis, please tell us a little bit about your personal history so that viewers who do not know you yet um, will realize who you are. Thank you. First of all, I would like to express to you, distinguished Maria, and to all your collaborators and colleagues, my most cordial greetings, my appreciation for having conceived the idea of the Corona Commission and for having invited me to this meeting. Your research Thank you. into the management of the COVID-19 emergency and mass experimentation greatly contributes to collecting evidence in order to bring to justice and punish those who are responsible. This constitutes an important contribution in view of the creation of an anti-globalist alliance, because the authors of the pandemic farce are the same people who today would like to push the world towards a total war and a permanent energy crisis. As far as my so-called career, I don't think there is much to say. I am a Catholic Archbishop who has held various roles of responsibility in the Vatican, both in the Secretary of State of the Holy See, as well as in the Governorate of the Vatican City State, and as Apostolic Nuncio to Nigeria, and finally to the United States of America, according to the will of Pope Benedict XVI. 
my notoriety, which is completely unwanted, is a result of my stance regarding sexual scandal of former American Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Another no less serious cases involving uh, senior members of the hierarchy. As a successor of the Apostles, I could not keep silent in the face of the attempts to cover up those shameful facts by the so-called Lavender Mafia, which enjoys the support and protection of Bergoglio. That's going to be one of the most important topics that we will very soon have to delve into in much more detail. Um, I, this is very unfortunate, but that's the way it is. We have to confront the truth. Uh, shall we start with the second question? ask that, uh, please read that question. Okay, I'll, I'll read the question. You have an impressive Vita, but if one searches your name in the old media, the mainstream media, one finds defamatory articles that, that accuse you, among other things, of spreading Kremlin propaganda and making confused statements. On closer inspection, though, this does not seem to us to be the case at all. Quite the contrary, rather, you remain true to your reputation of being a sincere man, even in an insincere environment, even if this is to your personal disadvantage. Where do you identify the, the Caesar, um, the uh, Caesura in your vita, where the virtue was um, reinterpreted by the old media as a flaw? What red, what red line did you cross? On what issue did, you, did your candor become a danger to the public narrative? One of the means used by those who want to eliminate an adversary whom they fear and cannot fight fairly. In this case, I am considering convenience, both by the exponents of the Deep Church and the Bergoglian Cabal, whose scandals and cover-ups I have denounced since the time of the Mechanic case, and I'm I am equally inconvenient for the deep state, which has been able to count on the complicity of the Holy See, as well as almost the entirety of the Episcopate, the event of the last few years. The dissonant voice of a bishop, especially when he formulates reason complaints, based on irrefutable facts. This putting the official narrative into question, both on the alleged renewal of the church under the between quotation pontificate, as well on the pandemic pass and the mass vaccination. Even the recent Russian-Ukrainian crisis significantly refined the globalist elite, NATO, the American deep state, the European Union, 
the World Economic Forum, the entire media machine, and the Vatican all align on the same side. Putin's intervention in Ukraine is considered a threat to the new world order that must be neutralized even at the cost of global conflict. That if I must identify a breaking point on the ecclesial front, it definitely coincided with my denunciation of the network of complicity and the scandals of corrupt clergy and prelates which Bergoglio has deliberately and obstinately sought to cover up on the civil front. Seems to me that the red line was crossed with my appeal for the church and the world, launched two years ago in May 2020, by which I denounced the threat represented by the silent coup carried out by means of the Earth Emergency. The energy and the food emergency, in addition to the war emergency, are always part of the disturbing scenarios that the World Economic Forum and the United Nations have described in great detail well in advance. When one day, not too far in the future, we hope, tribunal judges these criminals and their accomplices in the institution of almost all the Western nations, this document will constitute the proof of the premeditation of the greatest coup d'etat of all time. And the same thing will happen with regard to the ecclesial affairs, demonstrating that the doctrinal and moral drift that originated with the Second Vatican Council created the necessary premises for the doctrinal and moral corruption of the clergy and the simultaneous delegitimization of the authority of the shepherds. Let us not forget that the revolutionary processes have always relied on the vices and weaknesses of its representatives, both to destroy the state and to weaken the church. That is, that is impressive, and I completely, 100% agree with that assessment. Now, the final question for today, there will be another opportunity for us to speak to you. The final question is, Your Excellency, the corona measures and the crisis are now entering its third year. In the meantime, warfare in the East and especially massive political and media warmongering has been added to the mix. How do you assess this development? The answer will be quite extensive 
for the complexity of this question. But let us clarify a fundamental point. The Ukrainian crisis was deliberately provoked by the deep state in order to force the world to carry out the Great Reset reforms, in particular the so-called technological transition and the green shift. It is the second stage of the globalist te technocrat coup after the pandemic phase. Mm -hmm. The psychopandemic marked the first level of a true and proper attack, initiated to seize control of governments. In reality today, they are only trying to bypass political power, which until now serve only as a mere executors of orders. Under the pretext of the pandemic, they have imposed systems of detailed population control, including systems for tracing individual citizens, who have been inoculated together with experimental gene serum. Just in the last few days at the Davos Forum, the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Burla, said, and I quote, Imagine a biological chip that is included in a pill that when it is swallowed goes into the stomach and emits a signal. Imagine the application, the possibility of making people obey. What is happening in this field is fascinating. End of the quotation. Albert Burla say what is happening because he's talking about existing technologies, not imaginary projects. The presence of graphene and self-assembling nanocircuits is now admitted even by those who a year ago called those who were sounding the alarm conspiracy theorists. The population of the nations adhering to the Agenda 2030 are now mostly vaccinated, or rather they have been genetically modified, and their immune systems have now been compromised in a reversible way. Perhaps some lawyers are now denouncing it will be discovered that, along with the genetic serum, they have injected chips that are capable of controlling even people's reaction, interfering with their behavior and making them docile if there are riots, or making them violent if it is necessary to have a pretext for military interventions. We are well beyond the global coup. This is the greatest, most sensational, unprecedented attack on the human person, on man's freedom, conscience, and will. 
you can well imagine the risk deriving from giving the World Health Organization sovereign control over the health systems of various nations. In the case of an emergency pandemic, they may create themselves. When those who must decide about vaccine campaign and treatments on containment measures and lockdowns are all financed by the big pharmaceutical companies and by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which theorizes about the perpetual pandemic and the perpetual booster vaccine. Even the resolution that was planned to be voted at the WHO, and which at least for now has been avoided, went, was in the direction of total control by the globalist synergy. We should therefore not be surprised if in the pitiful attempt to hide the adverse effect of the experimental Gini serum, the WHO is now sounding alarms about the alleged monkeypox, whose symptomology is curiously similar to some of the side effects of the mRNA vaccine. Both the WHO and the European Medicines Agency, 75% of which is financed by Big Pharma, have shown themselves to be in a clear conflict of interest and totally dependent on the pharmaceutical industry. Regarding the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, what should have been an operation of peace to put an end to the acting persecution of the Russian-speaking minority in Ukraine by neo-Nazi ex extremists had been deliberately and culpably transformed into a war. The repeated appeal of President Putin to an international community for Minsk protocol to be respected have fallen on death years. Why? Why? For the simple reason that it was an excellent opportunity. First, it was an opportunity to artificially create a global energy crisis with which to, to force the transition to alternative energy sources along with all the business this represents. With, without a crisis, how could the increase in the price of gas and petrol be imposed as an instrument to force companies and individuals to make the famous ecological transition that no one has ever voted for and that has been imposed by bureaucrats who are enslaved by the elite. Second, the Russian-Ukrainian crisis is an opportunity in order to destroy in a controlled and ruthless way 
all the companies consider useless or harmful to the global economy of the multinational corporations. Millions of artisan companies, small businesses that make the nation of Europe unique, and Italy in particular, were forced to close because after the disasters caused by the lockdowns and the rules of psycho-pandemic, an increase in gas and oil prices was provoked with criminal speculation by the market and without the Russian Federation getting an extra penny. All of this was planned by the European Union, taking orders from NATO, by means sanctions that have repercussions on those who have imposed them. The cancellation of the traditional economy is not an unfortunate consequence of an unexpected conflict, but rather the premeditated criminal action of a global mafia, compared to which the traditional mafia seems like a beneficial partnership. The advantage of this subversive operation benefits the multinational corporations that can acquire companies at real and real estate at bankruptcy prices, and also the financial company that profit from loans to millions of new poor people. Here too, the ideological and infernal purposes of the elite make use of the complicity of the economic potentates whose aim are merely to make profit. With the war, the military industry and the no less flourishing industry of information technology and mercenaries now have the opportunity to conclude lucrative deals with which they generously reward the politicians who have voted to send arms and support to, to Ukraine. Thirdly, the Russian-Ukrainian crisis is an opportunity because one purpose of the war in Ukraine was to allow to cover up the scandal of Hunter Biden, who was involved with the Metabiota Society in financing biolaboratories in which bacteriological weapons of mass destruction are produced. The siege of Azovastal steel plant was motivated precisely by the need to hide both the members of foreign NATO forces, along with the new Nazi or Azov and Pravy sector, as well as the biolabs banned by international conventions which were intended to be used to carry out experiments on the local population. Fourth reason. The Russian-Ukrainian crisis is an opportunity because the psycho-pandemic narrative, despite the complicity of the mainstream media, 
did not prevent, was not able to prevent the truth getting out and gradually sp spreading the ever wider sector to wider out wider spec sector, the public opinion. The crisis in Ukraine was intended to have been a well-run operation of mass destruction. In order to avoid visibility of the increasingly uncontrollable news about the lethal effect of the experimental serum and the disastrous consequences of the measures taken by nations during the emergency pandemic. The falsification of data is now overt. The deliberate concealment of the result of the first phase of the experiment is admitted by the pharmaceutical companies themselves. Awareness of the uselessness of masks and lockdowns has been certified by multiple studies. The damage done to the psychophysical balance of the population, and in particular to children and the elderly, is incalculable, just as there has also been incalculable damage to students as a result of distance learning. Keeping people glued to their televisions or to social media with the anti-Russian propaganda in order to prevent them from beginning to understand what has been done to them is the least this crazy criminal can do. Criminals who are just as responsible for the pandemic as they are for the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. If we take the script of this screenplay planned out by the globalist elite, we find that beyond the scenario of the pandemic, there are other planet scenes that are no less disturbing, which we have already seen anticipated by the media since last year. The energy, the energy crisis, which is not an unfortunate consequence of an unforeseeable crisis in Ukraine, but rather a means by which, on the one hand, to impose the green economy, by motivated by a non-existent climate emergency, and on the other hand, to destroy national economies, making companies fail for the advantage of the multinational corporations, causing unemployment and thus creating underpaid labor, forcing nations to go into debt because they have been deprived of their fiscal sovereignty, or in any case, to go into perpetual debt because of the senior age. The food emergency is also in Klaus Schwab's script. It has begun for certain products in United States and Europe, and more generally for grain and cereal products in many nations in Africa and Asia. Then, 
We discovered that Bill Gates is the largest landowner in the United States. Just when there is a shortage of grain and agricultural products, and that Bill Gates is the head of the startup that produces artificial human milk, just when there is a shortage, shortage in the United States of powder milk for babies. And let's not forget that the multinational agricultural companies are succeeding in imposing the use of their sterile seed, which must be repurchased every year, and banning the use of traditional seeds, which would allow poor countries not to depend on them. Whoever designed the series of present crises, whose roots were laid down at the beginning of the 1990s with the privatization of the state-owned companies, also made sure to place people trained by World Economic Forum for this purpose in government, institutions, international agency, at the head of central banks and large strategic assets in the media and in the main world religions. Look at the prime ministers of the principal European countries of Canada, Australia, New Zealand. They were all recruited from young global leaders for tomorrow group. And the fact that they are at the highest level of leadership of these nations and of the United Nations and of the World Bank or to be more than sufficient to put them on trial for subversion and high treason. Those who have sworn to apply the laws in the interests of their own nations commit perjury at the moment in which they have to answer for their own action not to the citizens of their nations, but to the faceless technocrats whom no one has elected. It is easy to make accusation that all this is a conspiracy theory, but such a dismissal no longer owes water, just like the accusation of collaborationism no longer works against anyone who expresses perplexity about the Russian-Ukrainian crisis and its management at the international level. Those who do not want to understand the plot because they are afraid of what they might discover persist in denying that there is a script and a director that there are actors and extras, sets and costumes. But can we really believe that the richest and most powerful people in the world would have agreed to launch such an attack on humanity in order to realize their delusional globalist dream, deploying an enormous amount of energy and resources without having first planned everything in great detail and just 
leaving it all to chance. The people who intended to purchase the house or start a business carefully plan it all out. Why should should it be a conspiracy theory to recognize that in order to obtain a confessional and criminal result, the elite must resort to lies and deception? I will end my answer just making an analogy, if you allow me. I would say that our attitude towards the present fact is similar to someone who finds himself having to put together a puzzle composed of thousands of pieces, but without having the final complete picture in front of him. Those who have constructed the globalist puzzle have done so with the intent of making the final picture of what they wish to obtain irrecognizable. However, anyone who sees the entire picture, or even only one significant part, starts to recognize how the pieces fit together. And anyone who has seen the final picture also knows how to interpret the silence and the connivances of government officials and even of the opposition parties, how to explain the complicity of doctors and paramedics in crimes committed in hospitals that went against all the scientific evidence, the complicity of bishops and priests who even reached the point of denying the sacrament to those who were dying because they were not vaccinated. One large area of puzzle become visible. And this is exactly what is happening now. It will be much easier to put the remaining pieces into place. And by that point, Klaus Schwab, George Soros, Bill Gates, the other conspirators, and those who remain over this criminal global conspiracy will be on the run to avoid being lynched. Thank you. Your Excellency, this is the best motivation that I can think of to go through with the international trials that uh, need to be started very soon in order to make sure that justice is rendered. Thank you very, very much for, the, for these very insightful answers to our questions. We cannot wait to um, interview you for a second time next week as it is scheduled. But at this point, I, we can all, I, I think all of us, we can only thank you for these very, very clear words because this is what it takes in order to see the whole picture and not just the individual pieces of the puzzle. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Thank you very much. Uh, I am very grateful for having given me this possibility to express myself.
and to, to give you this message. But of course, we are, after all, full of great hope because the truth cannot be hidden and we prevail at the end. Thank you also for the great work that you are doing with the company of your lawyers and all your collaborators. May God bless you. Thank you very much. We are all in this together and we are extremely grateful for your support. We uh, hope you're going to have a great weekend uh, and you can relax and uh, find spirituality, which you probably have already found. We're, we're still looking for it, but thank you very, very much indeed. God bless you and goodbye now. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Wow. Wow, Rainer. Das waren tatsächlich Mann. sehr klare Worte. Und ja. Ich finde das wirklich, das ist sehr I really find that this was very important. I thought uh, that this puzzle metaphor was very impressive. Um, that even if you only see a small part of the picture, you can um, divine how things might uh, fit together and that you can then put the other uh, jigsaw puzzle pieces into place uh, more easily. We keep finding more pieces, um, ever more pieces, and uh, but they all fit together and we can see what's happening here. Exactly. It's very important that what we've heard of the experts on detail is confirmed by his assessment. He sees it like we've seen the parts. He's seeing the big picture already. He has uh, much more uh, access to detailed sources. I can only say that was absolutely necessary. We will reach many, many more people than we were able to reach with the small parts of the puzzle in the part, because this man has an absolute high uh, reputation, they can falsify Wikipedia how much ever they like. He's so authentic. Um, what else can you be in his position if you stand up and say, I speak up now? What do you think, Wolfgang? Well, I think that's the best argument for the true um, value of his, uh, the truth in his uh, words. If somebody in his position does what he does, he knows, uh, you know, that he only does it because he fears he has to. So I have every respect of it. I think this is absolutely overwhelmingly impressive. And that shows us that must be our motivation to carry on what we do. Um, even so much more, I see it more and more clear, especially in the light of uh, the legal side pushing that further. I still do think that we'll just sweep up the rubble at the end because uh, a higher power will intervene, but we will do it also and still uh, complain and file suits wherever it makes sense to show we are there. We'll get you and we will. And I also find it um interesting um, uh, to consider whether the um, monkeypox uh, we uh, had an ad hoc uh, meeting Ulrich Kammerer and myself spoke about the um, details earlier today and the deja vu aspects we have here and um, 
I think that if we hadn't made this preliminary work and all these people didn't uh, contribute to, to, so we know who uh, had um, seen patient number one, uh, both with uh, uh, COVID and with uh, the monkey uh, pox, and what are the uh, actual uh, vaccination damages and how do they um match or uh, reflect the uh, supposed uh, symptoms of um, monkeypox. Um, all of this would not be possible if um, so many people uh, hadn't started such uh, such an early time to deal with all of this. And that makes it much easy, much harder for the other side to come up with something now that is an entirely um, surprising novelty that uh, everybody needs to get their heads around. So I think it's very important that we've uh, collected this uh, body of knowledge so we have a better idea of what's happening here now. I think it's also good that he had no fear of uh, naming the political function of the Ukraine crisis and the also mentioning who benefits, who profits from it, and that the political that the uh, political opposition is tabooed as well, and uh, that um, we've, um, um, they never say what they should think in Parliament anymore. That's a very bad situation. And I do think that we already live in a totalitarian situation already. That has to stop immediately. We are a free democratic state. We've got the human rights. We've got our constitution. I And I insist on fighting for it and not letting these people to take it away from us, following other objectives. Our basic law is fantastic and I'll fight for it. And I want to do that. Everybody who is in the army uh, swears an oath on it. All officers swear an oath. All policemen swear an oath for it. Let's go for it. We will, Wolfgang. Our constitution isn't uh, similar to the US constitution by coincidence. The Americans here see it and Hopefully, ever more people will see it in uh, Germany. And I think an important step has been taken today with uh, the words spoken by Cardinal uh, Vigamo. As you said, uh, his courage is the best argument uh, corroborating the truth of his words. Uh, you wouldn't just do this uh, without good reason. And he, his courage goes much further than I would have thought. He named the people responsible in the Catholic Church. And I think that is very important, so they can't hide either anymore. Well, this was a risk of life for the people who did this in the past. In this context, we uh, really have to look more closely. Who are the people in the shadows who benefits from this? And we will uh, formulate a few uh, questions, uh, identities that we want to know more about. And we would call on all viewers um, to uh, participate in this and to um, participate in the research. We will post on the Facebook channel who we would like to look at in more detail, which structures, which um, companies that we need to know more about. And we would like to ask you to chip in to um, do research together with us so that we 
can um, bring our uh, combined brain power together so that we can um, demask uh, the people, uh, the great eminences behind everything. So um, please subscribe to our channel so you're uh, kept up to date on what we're planning to do. So it would be good if we could um, uh, connect and we uh, got some uh, images from historic events. We will go um, into more research. Uh, it's very interesting and I think all of these things will then finally allow us to tighten the noose, uh, as it were. I think this takes us to the end of the session. I uh, wanted to repeat again, because some people asked, we have not fallen out with Oval Media. No, we are actually, as uh, indeed, um, cooperating uh, even more closely. We um, just thought that it would uh, be easier if we uh, foot their bill, and therefore we um, uh, will be um, focusing our call for donations on ourselves so that if you want to continue uh, supporting us or Oval, uh, then please um, uh, send the donor, uh, donations to us. They, of course, do a lot of uh, great stuff as well. So you may uh, check out uh, Oval Media or their channels. They have a lot of interesting formats as well. And it keeps uh, growing as well. Uh, a lot of things that are being presented there. Uh, feel free to watch that as well. Then we also have a new bank connection. Uh, please check it out on our website. I don't know if it is uh, shown on screen right now. Um, so. Um, if you wish, you can um, make a, a standing order um, and uh, we need uh, this money in order to uh, remain afloat and independent so that we continue our work. Rainer, is there anything else to say? Do we have anything to show? When are we going to have the video on the uh, monkeypox? Well, I think it has been uh, shot. We need to uh, edit it again. So I think it can be uh, put up tomorrow by the latest. It's important to announce it so that people know it. We'll do that on the channel as well, but I'm not sure if um, it is already cut. I have a version that I've uh, stored, but I couldn't uh, upload it yet uh, because of the Corona uh, Committee meeting now. We have one short clip to finish off with. That's what we play on our tour here. It's an interview of uh, 1983 with a member of the Congress of the House of uh, Representatives, Larry McDonald's, who said in a very dr uh, drastic interview in 1983 with the cheekiness of the other side that we know, but he stayed on course. At the time, he very clearly talked about the deep state, about the deep state of the party, cross-party deep state in the US. I think this video is very impressive. A man who probably paid with his life for what he said, because briefly after that video was published, his aircraft that he was in KHL, Korean Airlines, you may remember that incident, 
um, for mysterious incidents uh, got into the Russian airspace and were shot down. Whether he really died at the time, as many people say, or whether anything else happened, we don't know. But since then, he was unheard of. And um, that is why I think this video is outstandingly impressive. The John Birch Society considers communism only one arm of a national, of a master conspiracy in which socialist American insiders are plotting to establish world government. Now, he also says, and here's director John McManus, that's your public relations director, saying that former Secretary of State Alexander Haig and CIA director William Casey are two of these master conspirators who are plotting to establish world government. Now, what do you say? You know, that kind of silly, asinine statement is what makes, pe makes people laugh at the John Birch Society. Well, Tom, I'm sure, being a long-standing member of the Rockefeller apparatus, uh, and as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations of long-standing, you're fully aware that you, there is an elitist core in this country that has seen value in subsidizing communism or protecting communism. It has? Sure. You're accusing me of subsidizing communism? No, no, I'm saying because that there I happen is, to belong no, to a no, to there a is an elite core. Study no, group? No, no, wait a minute. There is an elite core in this country that has dominated American society. Well, I'm not one of so them. The trilateral face. commission, the trilateral the commission, council on foreign, council on foreign relations. Now, here's the department, I suppose. Well, let's face it, they've dominated the State Department for 40 years, and mm -hmm. uh, pretty much openly All right, so. but what are they trying to do? Well, their now? objective is to try to bring about a gradual transition in our society a dissolving of sovereignty and a moving steadily to the left on the political spectrum. Well, who are the belief, they? The elitist groups that I mentioned, particularly key individuals and policymakers in the Council of Foreign Relations. Is the International Monetary Fund part of this? Well, I would say the International Monetary Fund has certainly been set up for the purpose of facilitating that transfer of sovereignty and transfer of wealth on the road. Right, we elected Mr. Conservative. Let me just finish the point right. because otherwise we're going to have a lot of un unanswered questions that you are looking at a group that has worked to bring about a dissolution of national sovereignty on the road to world government. And certainly uh, you're familiar with uh, local professor Carol Quigley, who has been part of your club, in which he admitted all this. And he said in his book, Tragedy and Hope, the only thing I disagree is that we've worked to keep it a secret. Tja, <clears throat> faszinierend. Fascinating. And now? Now he's gone. Yes. And I think it's important that it shows one more time that it is particularly now uh, that these truths are coming to light. And I think it's uh, ever the more important that uh, Cardinal uh, Vigamor should have um, uh, spoken the truth again. That is the light at the end of the tunnel. That's always been trying our task or been our task even though others have tried to insinuate uh, something else but it's not the task that's the task that we set ourselves because only we determine what we want to do we want to enlighten people we want to bring truth to light and we will continue doing this and as he said that will lead to a situation where at the end of the day and it is not far in the future he also hopes that it's not too far away anymore that at the end of the day we will prevail over the dark forces I'm convinced. And in that sense, I wish all of you a nice Friday evening and a wonderful weekend and see you next week.
Thank you, Wolfgang. See you. Bye-bye.